All right. Uh, this is fascinating, by the way. First, we're just going to go to the, uh, the tweet. Oh, no, that's not the right way. We're going to go to the tweet, which was from the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center at Canadian Friends Simon Wiesenthal Center. A video is being shared widely on social media that depicts a protester in Belleville yelling, quote, you're a pathetic Jew, end quote, at least twice to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Protest is essential to any democracy, but hatred spreads when it is tolerated. We urge any media sharing the video to condemn this vile expression of hashtag anti-Semitism. We're going to play this again because... You know, they had that blue dress, gold dress meme going around where different people saw different things. Then you had the audio version. It was Yanni versus Laurel. And if anybody's seen uh, the episode of Mark Rober, this is probably not the shout out he wants. I love Mark Rober and we're like besties and, and he condones everything I talk about on my channel. I'm joking. Mark Rober does amazing videos nonetheless. And he made the video where he made the talking piano. And the amazing thing about his talking piano, where he also had the piano electrically play the song E, uh, that the most complicated piano song ever, the piano was talking. And you couldn't hear what the piano was really saying until Rober, Mark Rober put in subtitles. So the, 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 we, got, we got our Laurel Yanni, our blue dress, gold dress. What does everybody hear in, the, um, in this audio? According to the Simon Wiesenthal Center, it's a protester shouting, you're a pathetic Jew, to Justin Trudeau. There are a number of reasons why one should have been skeptical from day one. Yelling, you're a pathetic Jew at Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau is not Jewish. Justin Trudeau is uh, Catholic, Roman, I don't even know what he is. He's not Jewish. He is arguably the political whore of one Klaus Schwab, also, not a Jew. Klaus Schwab, there's some disagreement about this. If he's not the son of a Nazi, he's at the very least the son of an individual who was a member of various national socialist organizations in Hitler's Germany. So a Catholic, Roman Catholic, whatever, uh, subservient political whore to the son of a national socialist adhering member of the Nazi regime of, 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 of Germany, calling him a pathetic Jew seems counterintuitive but let's listen to this one more time and see do we hear pathetic jew because pleb the reporters in the chat and he may have cracked the mystery with the help of the other aggregate knowledge of the internet let's listen again you're a pathetic jew you are a now you've been told to hear you're a pathetic jew in this video if i were to suggest that what is being said is either pathetic puke or pathetic juke, because this person might have something of an accent. Listen to it again, but don't worry, we're not going to stop here. Pathetic puke or pathetic juke or pathetic Jew. And I'm going to put a poll in the chat in a second. Now, now that you're told to listen for the uke, do you hear the uke? You're a pathetic you. All right, but before we go any further with the sleuthing, everybody, uh, I'm going to play. Pleb the reporter did a video on this. 
he posted the same video and I don't know, he blew out, enhanced the audio. He, I don't know what he did. You know, he pulled some MacGyver stuff with the audio. Pleb the reporter, for those of you who don't know, worth a follow on Twitter. By the way, I just reached over 500,000 uh, followers or Twitter followers on Twitter screaming into the abyss people we're screaming into the abyss and and the bullhorns getting louder and people are listening but hold on pleb the reporter um did something to the audio oh pleb where's where is your where is your thing here oh come on oh here it is it's pleb the reporter right here so he he tinkered with the audio somewhat and now listen to this same video audio tinkered with so that it's clearer or less clear depending on who you ask so the question is <laughs> i'm reading some of the chat the question is uh pleb did a breakdown of this it was someone else i forget who it was herb on twitter who originally said it really sounds like he's saying pathetic puke or pathetic juke and they might have an accent um and what would make more sense I say if you go hear this and you go listen to this, it definitely sounds like you could hear a UKE. But I'm going to do this because we can only do this one possible way. How do you do polls? Uh, poll. Uh, start a poll. Uh, let's see here. Uh, question. What did the protester say? And it's going to be pathetic. Uh, I'm going to say puke joke. Puke slash joke. Or Jew, ask your community. Let's see. Let's see. And I'll, maybe I'll play it one more time because I think it might be worth playing one more time. Um, Mark Garrison, the Canadian politician with the Ukrainian flag in his bio, he was quick to jump on this as well. Oh, anti-Semitism has no place in, in, in Canada. Everyone has to condemn this. And I said, look, I didn't. this was before anyone determined it was puke versus juke or whatever. Um, I said, does it make sense that one would call Justin Trudeau, not a Jew, uh, subservient to the WEF's Klaus Schwab, son of a Nazi, or at least someone with Nazi affiliation or national socialist affiliation. Because you look up the fact check on that, and they say, no, his father was not a close Hitler tie, but his father was a member of various national socialist organizations in Hitler's Germany. Would it make sense to call him a puke, a joke, or a Jew? And the people that are running around saying anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, that's predicated on the notion that in their minds, it would be an insult to call someone a Jew, which is a very interesting premise upon which to begin an analysis. Now, a pathetic puke, no, a pathetic joke makes sense. A pathetic puke makes sense. What does not make sense? Calling Justin Trudeau a pathetic Jew. That's our intro, people. Um, <laughs> Jew makes... I, it makes no sense. All right. Before I do, I want to do the, we're going to do the, we're going to do the sponsor before we get into anything. You may have noticed this is probably, <laughs> I don't know if, if the sponsor wanted to be starting with an analysis of, you know, by the way, and I, I made this joke, uh, a joke. There's so much anti-Semitism in Canada. It takes uh, fabrication of anti-Semitism and running with it. There's so much anti-LGBT violence and hatred in Canada. It takes Joel Harden lying and fabricating a purported alleged hate crime that was debunked on the internet. It does not, 
the protester, in as much as you might disagree with their conduct, vitriol, tone, and demeanor, did not call Justin Trudeau a pathetic Jew. The Simon Wiesenthal, the friends of the Simon Wiesenthal, the friends of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, try to say that five times in a row, uh, might want to take a step back and before claiming hashtag anti-Semitism, maybe just think about whether or not what you're actually putting out there is actually a bona fide example of anti-Semitism. Mark Gerritsen, you jackass. You are all about dividing and conquering, telling everybody they are perpetual, infinite, endless victims so that you can weaponize it politically. When you falsely claim hashtag anti-Semitism, you set everyone back, and you actually promote anti-Semitic sentiment by fabricating non-existent anti-Semitic LGBT hate crimes. And good for Joel Harden. He did it. He got away with it. Simon Wiesenthal Center, Mark Gerritsen, it looks like the truth has been determined on this. Whatever that protester said, if you disagree with it, oh, and then, and then people pivot. Well, okay, sure. He might not have said pathetic Jew, but look how terrible that is. There is a world of difference between saying someone is a violent, oh, sorry, a vile, I don't know, uh, crass protester and calling someone anti-Semitic. One is an attack on the individual. The other uh, wrongly purports that that individual is representing intolerance against a group of that protesting group as a whole. And that's how this story was run when it first came out. So Pleb the Reporter, good for him for, you know, surveilling the internet, coming to the truth, I think. And we'll go back to that poll in a second. Now, before Robert Barnes, the man of the hour, gets here, you may have noticed when this stream started, it said, this stream contains a paid promotion or whatever. I don't know what it says. Paid sponsorship? Uh, it does. And it is Field of Greens yet again. <sighs> it's easy to sell health. I know my lines. Everybody's supposed to have servings of foods. Yada, yada, yada. First of all, I spent six and a half hours in a car today going to pick up a kid at camp and then bring her back. The traffic in Montreal. Oh my goodness. All that to say, have I had my servings of fruits and vegetables? I have not had my five to seven serving of raw fruits and vegetables today yet. There's still time. I have dinner and I'm going to load up on arugula. I'm going to eat so much arugula. It's going to make me regular. Everybody is supposed to have between five and seven servings of raw fruits and vegetables a day. To have them unprocessed, it's better. Most people don't do that. Most people don't have enough raw fruits and vegetables in a day, and most people have bad dietary habits. Uh, other than, you know, getting them raw, getting from the source, eating a bag of arugula, arugula with a little salt and pepper on it, what's the best way you can do it? Defecated greens, Garrett Pace. They are not defecated. They are desiccated. And I have a bit of a lisp, so every now and again, it sounds like I'm saying F when I'm saying S. Clean my palate. They are desiccated greens. It's not a supplement. It's not an extract. It is basically dried, pulverized fruits, vegetables, mashed into some powder. You open it up. You can smell the sweet odor as it, you know, a little bit comes out in dust format. Um, a spoonful is one serving of raw fruits and vegetables a day. It's USDA organic, made in America. Um, it's USDA organic approved because it's not a supplement. It's not an extract, which in Canada are soon to be treated like going to be governed by the FDA people. Um, it's delicious. It looks like swamp water, which is a good thing because we're going to get to the swamp water later on because I caught a ma massive fish this weekend. Uh, swamp water is rich in nutrients. It's where life is born. And this stuff, when you drink it, you just put a, stir it around one spoonful twice a day, two servings of fruits and vegetables. It's a healthy alternative to what would otherwise be bad habits. And it's actually just healthy. You get your antioxidants, your nutrients, your everything that you would otherwise get from eating raw fruits and vegetables in a powdered, desiccated format. 
Go to um, the website. It's fieldofgreens.com. Brings you to Brickhouse Nutrition. Promo code VIVA will get you 15% off your first order. And uh, the links are in the pinned comment. All right. Till Robert gets here. Did I send Robert? I sent Robert the, the link. Hold on. I'll do my standard disclaimers. And then we're going to see if, um, if I did not send Robert the link. Uh, these wonderful thing called Super Chats. YouTube takes 30% of them. Um, and if you don't like that, you don't necessarily want to support YouTube who uh, removed one of my uh, streams and doesn't give a reason. You know, they give a reason. Misinformation, medical misinformation. It was an interview with Francois Amalaga, uh, a Cameroonian who's come to Quebec, protested the COVID lockdown measures, pro protested COVID tickets, spent many, many a week, a month in jail. That interview, who knows? Hey, somewhere in there, they won't tell you the timestamp. They won't tell you the what, the who's, the when's. Just a blanket. And I'm gonna, I'm, not, I'm gonna needle YouTube every day because it's hogwash. Um, so if you don't wanna support YouTube, they get 30% of these Super Chats, go over to Rumble where we are simultaneously streaming. And for those of you who don't know the format, I have exclusivity with Rumble. We start off on YouTube and Rumble. We then end on YouTube, go over to Rumble exclusively. I'm also on Locals, vivabarneslaw.locals.com. After we're done on Rumble, we have an after party on Locals where we take questions. We have Rumble uh, Locals tips there. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful community where everyone is above average. No medical advice, no election fortification advice, no legal advice, but it doesn't really matter because YouTube does whatever it wants anyhow and doesn't answer to anybody, but that might change someday. Okay, Dostalov Akhtmankari, good to see you again. Had the founders foreseen the future, they would have written a very different Second Amendment, a well-protected public. Uh, Dostalov, being necessary to the security of a free state, the duty, eh, duty, to keep people and bear arms enforced. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to try to remain optimistic. You and Barnes keep fighting the good fight. Trump 2024. Thank you very much. With subtitles, I could have heard anything from cute to cube, the power of suggestion. One thing you wouldn't hear, Jew. One thing that doesn't make sense, calling Justin Trudeau a Jew. First of all, I don't speak for the Jewish community. I can only imagine many a Jew would say, do not call that man a Jew, and we do not want to have anything historically to do with that man. That man is the Pharaoh. That man is, uh, what's the guy from Haman? That guy is the oppressor. Do not lump him with us. And if he were a Jew, my goodness, would people have known about it already. I demand the garish neon light be brought back. Come back to the USA, Viva. You won't be arrested for wrong thing here as long as you aren't in a damn run city. I make my trek back to Florida uh, as of Wednesday, I think. So that's it. I'm going to be done bouncing around makeshift studios. All right, Barnes is in the house. He looks angry. What did I do? He looks, I'm, I'm joking, everybody. Um, I think we've done it all. Okay, good. I'm bringing Robert in. Robert, sir, how goes the battle? Good, good. All right, now, the, the, uh, my, uh, my lighting is terrible. I got, like, awful floodlights on the top, and I've only got one neon light, but we're going to live with it. The mic is good. Robert, what? You, oh, the Lincoln, Lincoln at Gettysburg. What's the book that you have behind you? Yeah, this is our Book of the Month Club at vivabarneslaw.locals.com, Lincoln at Gettysburg. Uh, we're... Three-fifths of the way through, uh, you're going to review chapter four and then chapter five uh, to wrap it up in a uh, different, we do those on each uh, Friday night. And so the, uh, uh, you know, Saturday was the uh, movie of the week, which was The Godfather, which was fun to watch. Uh, we do an open live chat there with all that. So, uh, yeah, all good, good. So, lo so long as the Sunday movie, uh, the Saturday movie wasn't Barbie, Robert. Oh, when we, just remind me, I, I won't forget. Remind me when we talk about Barbie. Um, I got it. Well, I, it's I, right a up funny the top. story. Uh, so hold on a second. I got a little hair here that I don't like. Um, Robert, what do we have on the menu for tonight? 
So up top, uh, the Barbie uh, horror story. Can uh, Mattel and Margot Robbie uh, be sued for the most fraudulent advertising campaign in the history of Hollywood? Uh, Then the Biden corruption scandals uh, got new evidentiary meat this past week uh, by various revelations from Congress and whistleblowers alike. Uh, The Trump trial date for the classified documents case has been set or has it? Uh, The Trump New York case went to removal and was remanded back to state court. What might happen on appeal in that case? The Trump Georgia case uh, led to a recusal of all the judges in Georgia uh, with a recusal motion of the prosecution pending. Then there was also word that they are going to try to indict Trump on January 6th charges as well as the lawfare against Trump reaches new heights and depths. Uh, And then there was claims that they could try to remove Trump from the ballot on 14th Amendment grounds. After we get through all those cases, we have another 2020 tied case as a a bunch of old folks in Michigan who are electors for Trump have now been uh, indicted on a criminal affidavit by the state attorney general for simply submitting certification paperwork that they could be Trump electors. Uh, We'll discuss that case. We have January 6 cases that uh, that are already up with petitions for cert before the U.S. Supreme Court. We have the assistant attorney general in Texas being subject to harassment by the Texas State Bar simply for filing that U.S. Supreme Court case concerning the 2020 election. Uh, We got the United States Senate trying to impose ethics rules on the Supreme Court of the United States with a recusal remedy that they're trying to create and potential impeachment remedies they're trying to create a predicate for. Uh, we have gun insurance. When can the, they just circumvent the Second Amendment by just making you carry insurance and circumvent your privacy rights by you disclosing who and what kind of gun you own as a condition of uh, additional condition of simply citizenship within a city? Uh, Ohio's liquor laws. Uh, is it the case that all these states that don't allow you to import wine from across state boundaries, could it be still constitutional or might it be unconstitutional? Case went before the Sixth Circuit this week uh, that might have some interesting ramifications. And diversity, equity, inclusion met an early death in federal court this time outside the affirmative action context, but in federal preferential contracts. Uh, What might that say more broadly for the equal protection impact across the economic landscape for other private uh, private and corporate and public diversity, equity, inclusion programs? And then two bonus cases that we'll talk about exclusively with our locals audience in the after party. What happens to frozen embryos? Will it surprise people that in Texas, a Texas appeals court has determined that a fertilized embryo is not a human being, is not a child, that they're property that you can contract. Uh, What does that mean for the future of that kind of uh, outside-the-womb development of children? And then last but not least, uh, Robert Francis Kennedy spoke before uh, Congress on the issue of censorship, for which the Democrats uh, responded by trying to censor him, uh, because why not at the censorship committee? So that's the uh, topics for tonight. Now, Robert, I, I'm going to just bring up, I'm not going to play it. I'm just going to, I think Critical Drinker deserves the shout out when he gets it because the critical, I haven't seen the movie. I watched the Critical Drinker's summary of it. Robert, the, uh, the ultimate irony, I just pick up my kid from camp. Uh, sh- she's young. And we're talking and we say, what happened? It's like, oh, we saw the Barbie movie yesterday. And I was like, 
you, they, they took you to see the Barbie movie. And I said, well, first of all, how was it? And she said, it's, it's just terrible. And I was like, so, and I knew everything about it. I was like, when they took you to see the movie, did they, did they think they knew what it was about or what it was going to be like? And uh, unclear answer. But all that says they took young kids to see this Barber, Barber, Barbie movie. Um, and from what I understand, from what the critical drinker said, I, he referred to it as uh, a terminal form of brain, <laughs> brain illness. He said it was literally the worst thing that he has ever had to sit through, but that he had to do it because, um, you know, it's his, it's his job. Everyone should go watch it. I'm going to share the link to Critical Drinker's analysis. Uh, but Robert, it, it got me thinking. Has any movie, if, if someone said, you know, like the movie Saw or the movie uh, The Hills Have Eyes or the movie The Human Centipede was a kid's cartoon. I mean, the gag wouldn't last long, but if anybody actually went to see the movie and then either got traumatized, got, I don't know, PTSD, uh, has there ever been a claim against a movie for such egregiously false, false advertising that people say, I would not have given you my $5 had I known what it was actually going to be about? Has such a precedent ever occurred? Yeah, actually, we discussed it uh, about a year ago. So what happened in that case was they advertised certain actors being in the movie and they end up getting cut from the movie. So several people sued on a class action saying, we only watched this movie because we saw the trailer with these actors and these actors weren't actually in the film in the final cut. And the movie studios went crazy and said, oh, we have our First Amendment right to lie in our trailers. This is creative artistic expression. As if they were somehow magically exempt from commercial speech restrictions. Because the First Amendment has said that when you make speech for the purposes of putting money in your pocket, then you are not allowed to communicate false information. That whereas you can communicate false information for purely political speech or religious speech, but when it's a commercial speech, you're not. And that's, that goes back to fraudulent advertising from the very inception. It's also kind of like defamation law, just in a different context. And the federal judge said, no, a trailer and a promotional advertisement is clearly intended to induce people to give you money. That makes it commercial speech, not purely political speech. And yes, you can be sued for trailers that misled people to buying tickets. And so far, nobody's really done much with that precedent because Hollywood is infamous for misleading its potential subscribers and ticket purchasers. Uh, all the time. But this may be, in my view, it's by far the most egregious example of that ever occurring. The For those that don't know, Barbie, you know, the Barbie represents a toy that is one of the most popular toys in the world, the most popular girls toy in the history of the world. Uh, so they have a built-in brand. And if, to the people who are involved in founding it were conservative Christians, to give an idea. So while it was feminist, it was first wave feminist. You can be anything as a as a woman. So there was, you know, Dr. Barbie, Pilot Barbie, President Barbie, Senator Barbie, uh, you, you know, you name it, Lawyer Barbie, et cetera. But it was that kind of feminism. It was not uh, the third wave intersectional bash the patriarchy, men are evil form of feminism. And so uh, so they had the first they had the built in most popular toy in the world and the, the most popular toy that had a built in fantasy world around it. In other words, you could not come up with a better IP. I mean, bigger than Star Wars, bigger than Harry Potter. But, I mean, the biggest IP that you could make into a film possible. So they came in with huge built in advantages. Then they got assigned to the project Margot Robbie, who basically looks like the classic version of Barbie. What, what and, was she? 
what was Margot famous for? Because I, I know that her name is really familiar. she was famous for Wolf of Wall Street. Then she ended up playing a bunch of roles, uh, playing in the uh, uh, well, I forget the name of the character off the top of my head, but uh, uh, Birds of Prey and 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 uh, that that character in a couple of movies. Uh, she actually hasn't carried movies very well, and it was only when she's been attached to Leonardo Di- uh, DiCaprio has she actually made good money. But she's, you know, considered, you know, but she looks like Barbie and has a very cheery personality. Uh, then you also had Ryan Gosling, who looks like Kent, uh, who's one of the most popular male characters out there. So they had, you know, two very popular actors that fit the role uh, as well. And then they, but they went further than that. They did a mass marketing campaign that a bunch of, you know, independent uh, like distributors and exhibitors got involved in on top of Warner Brothers and Mattel. Uh, Mattel, by the way, made close to two billion dollars a year on Barbie, to give you an idea. You know, it's between one point five and one point six in a given year. The uh, so I mean, that's the kind of cash that comes in on Barbie, to give you an idea. Uh, it's top five pretty much every year for 50 plus years. Its target audience has always been young girls. And so they, the third part was the marketing campaign, which my estimates had to be at least 150 million. The budget of the movie was another 150 million. They probably got another 50 to 100 million in you know, local theaters and others jumping in on it to make money. And what it is is they made it into an event, the event of the summer, you know, dress up and you know, wear your clothes and come out and have fun. But critically, they made three specific when things leaked out. That given the history of the director, that this might she made a 2019 adaptation of Little Women that was very unpopular. This director has no history of making popular films. Made Lady Bird, other stuff, art house feminist films, uh, and then some of the comment, some of the cast were saying things like, "This will put a coffin in the end of heteronormativity forever." Uh, people were like, "Hold on a second, what's going on?" Because the film had been advertised all summer as a summer fun fantasy bubblegummy popcorny uh lighthearted comedy uh cheery and to give an idea it had like Ken and uh Barbie interacting with each other Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling and Ryan Gosling Ken is saying oh we will be boyfriend and girlfriend and she's like oh what does that mean and he's like oh i don't know so it's that kind of uh oh it's cheery oh, wow what would it be like if dolls came to life ha <laughs> this is kind of funny well and I saw, I think I saw early ads and I was like, oh, it's going to be a Lego movie type thing. Like, like that's the level of childish uh, humor and childish subject matter. And now I know better, but I'll, I'll get to a clip in a second. Yeah. So it, it didn't end up being like Lego. It ended up being more like uh, we need to talk about Kevin type style. Yeah, exactly. The So then when any stories whispered out that this was something else, that there were trans characters in there, there was other things. Uh, Mattel did a massive push and said, oh, no, no, this is movie's not feminist. It's not feminist at all. There's nothing feminist in this film. Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, Mattel, and the director came out and said, oh, this is, you know, this is for everyone. This is for little kids. This is a little kid's film. Even though it had a PG-13 label, but most parents have long since ignored that because you don't know whether that, what that means anything or not anymore. They tend to rely on the media, on the, on the actors, on the directors, on the others. And in fact, it got to the point where people on the left were joking about it. They're like, oh, you uh, you know, one movie credit. This parent had her young girl there. And apparently she didn't get the memo about, you know, how this was about death, violence, sex, gender identification, and asking questions like, what's a, gyco- a gynecologist, mommy? Um, with all, <clears throat> the, it was, it's thematic struck. Now, here's what uh, it actually is. 
the whole summation of the film can be from the very first opening of the scene, which is the Barbie doll arrives and little girls at the time are sitting around playing with their babies, baby dolls with their, you know, and they're uh, nursing them and everything else. They see the Barbie doll and they take their babies and they literally start bashing their heads into the ground. I think I think this this might be a you know we have to work with the clips that are available online. It's with a ripoff homage to 2001: A Space Odyssey, where little girls discover Barbie for the first time and gleefully cast off their boring and oppressive baby dolls in an orgy of violence and destruction. And if the visual metaphor of little girls happily destroying the embodiment of motherhood to focus their lives instead on a shallow and materialistic piece of consumerist trash is lost on you, then I don't know what to say, man, but you're probably the target audience for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never that guy. I love, I love so, him. Um, okay. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, and, and it, it is pernicious propaganda. It is third wave intersectional feminism. That is, and its target audience is vulnerable, impressionable little girls. And like some people ask me why I care about the film. And it's like, this is where the people on the right or more traditionalist in general have been asleep at the wheel for about half a century. Some of it's because religious conservatives decided to self-segregate and isolate themselves from mainstream culture to where they don't even know it's occurring and happening. And thus suddenly wake up and an entire generation or now two generations millennials and zoomers have politics and beliefs that sound insane to them because they weren't watching while their little kids were playing with toys and watching TV shows and watching film that was subtly radically reshaping their worldview. It's not a coincidence that this is the target audience either. If you go back to the Nazis, you go back to Mao, who did they primarily target for the future of their uh, operations? Young children. Nazis created special young children's organizations. Mao's cultural revolution was heavily predicated on children as young as five years old to completely bash all of the old traditional cultural values. This is a radical uh, film of extreme propaganda that is anti-male, anti-motherhood, anti-family, anti-babies, and literally its celebratory scene is, go kill your babies. Isn't that funny? Ha ha. I mean, that's the evil nature, pernicious nature of this film. And the uh, uh, there is like, like one just one illustration of the lie. There is no relationship between Ken and Barbie. Ken is a appendage, an irrelevant, insignificant figure who's annoying, uh, and who's an annoying simp, who then when he discovers the patriarchy becomes an evil villain that they overthrow at the end and reduce back to his simp status. That, that there's no lovey dubby friend, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend, fake relate. It doesn't exist. It's a complete lie what they put in there. It's it's the it's not a cheery film. It's not even a tonally consistent film. I mean, when you're talking about death, you're talking about violence, you're talking about sex, you're talking about you have trans characters in there pretending to be. And here's people like Laura Loomer is out there completely lying about the film. People ask me why I distrust her. If you know anything about her personally, you would want nothing to do with her. But putting that aside, the reason why I distrust her is why is she out there promoting lies about Barbie, saying, oh, it promotes women and gender, women and men is two, only two genders. No, it doesn't. It has trans characters as Dr. Barbie. The so argument is out there lying. Is she getting the, paid under the table? Who knows? But it's the nature of the, uh, of, of the perniciousness of this targeting a young generation, trying to radicalize them 
behind third uh, generation. And for those people that don't know what that means, it says so in the film. If women are safe, men need to be unsafe. If men are safe, by definition, that means women are unsafe. If men have power, then by definition, women don't. If women are going to be safe and have power, men need to be powerless. Men need to not be safe. It's anti-father, anti Every male character in the entire film, except for the one pretending to be a woman, who they justify and say, that's just fine, as Dr. Barbie. Uh, the Every other male, actual male character in the film is an idiot or a villain or both. There is not <laughs> a single good one in it. There's no good father figures in it. It, it the pregnant Barbie is shamed and, and, and looked down upon. Motherhood is treated negatively throughout pretty much the entire film. It's not a lighthearted film. It's not a satirical film. It is a radical intersectional feminist film. And they got a bunch of people to take their little girl, girls to the film. They got a bunch of conservatives to go to the film built on one big fat fraud. They're going to make huge amount of money at the box office this weekend because the best marketing campaign in the history of Hollywood. Problem for them is it's one big fat fraudulent campaign that I believe a class action can be brought against Margot Robbie personally, against Mattel, against Warner Brothers, against Ryan Gosling personally, against Gina Gershaw personally, because these litany of lies, when the lies are intended to brainwash little kids, some of the most vulnerable, impressionable people on the planet, needs to have legal consequence, and there needs to be legal blowback. And the precedents have already been established. This was fraudulent advertising. And Mattel needs to start writing big fat checks for all the people they stole from. Spoiler alert for anybody who cares to go see this movie. Critical Drinkers, one of the funniest lines in his analysis, he says, all men are so evil in this movie when Barbie enters the real world to find out which is the kid that 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 is owning her that's unhappy and causing Barbie and Barbie land to have wrinkles and whatever. Barbie gets into the real world and, so, and a man immediately comes up to her and smacks her on the butt. And the critical drink is like, a man comes up and smacks her on the butt. Like, that's what men do in, in well, broad in daylight. Beach, by the way. In, in, in Venice Beach, in front of Bobby's boyfriend. I don't know why he's Austrian. He's British all of a sudden. Um, and it, look, even my kid, I tell you, I, I would, I, I'm pretty open and very lax maybe to a flaw in terms of what I'll let my kids watch because we'll talk about it afterwards. But even that opening scene, uh, you know, my kid said, I didn't like it. It, it, it was scary. Uh, and... There is an argument that I see people out there raising that this entire movie is like woke critique. Like it's 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 trolling almost. It makes it makes radical feminists look stupid. It makes the idea look dumb. It makes women look villainous. That type, if that's the critique, first of all, that doesn't really work on a younger generation that doesn't no. that doesn't operate with that with that framework. And it's very very obvious that that was not the intended uh, social message of the movie. And from you what have I understand, feminists in the left all celebrating it. If that was the case, that's where Laura Loomer just kind of lying, and people like that are just either really really dumb or overtly lying. Um, the but yeah, it, I mean to give people an example, uh, Odin, uh, you know, o OMB reviews Odin's movie blog described as one of the most disgusting films he's ever seen. That in a film that he almost never recommends people don't see a film. He did so here. He said it is equal to gender relations to what birth of a nation was to the United States to race relations. And for those that don't know, birth of a nation literally birthed the second coming of the Ku Klux Klan and the biggest fascist movement in the world at the time prior to Mussolini's rise and the Nazi, especially prior to the Nazis rise. The, the, it was entirely that film. People keep underestimating the power and importance of film in shaping culture, society, politics. There's a reason why Andrew Breitbart said politics is 
downstream from culture, not upstream. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, Critical Drinker described it as one great lie and one of the worst films he's ever had been subject to. Midnight Edge, a guy, longtime movie reviewer, described it as pure evil, a language he's never used for any film ever. Uh, the culture critics, similar criticisms. Um, the, uh, the, 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 I always forget his name, Shaq Diversity, the, the night guy. He described it as one of the most horrifying films. It was people that understand what's going on in the culture described it with utter shock and horror uh, because they understand the moral impetus and impact of this film potentially on a whole generation of people who in young impressionable little girls who don't realize they're being taught. And, and let's look at what, what is, I mean, the, the young millennials and zoomers, young women that are saying are overwhelmingly a third, a lot of them disproportionately, I should say third generation feminist. The uh the you know the third generation of feminism third the and what 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 do we see with their lives? Uh, unusually low rates of marriage, unusually low rates of having a, a positive father figure, sometimes against their own. I mean that they sought it out but aren't able to get it. Uh, the in terms of ha for their children, uh, the depression rates are the highest in history for any group of people for this generation. Uh, the anxiety rates are the highest ever. The self-harm rates are five times higher than they've ever been in history for any for that generation. So we know what third what intersectional third generation feminism produces. It produces extremely unhappy, sad, anxiety riddled, depressed women. And that's what they've succeeded with culture. And now they're trying to grab another generation with it. And that's why I find it morally horrendous. This movie was made in honor of a Barbie, all right. Named Klaus Barbie. That's the kind of movie this is. <laughs> I have here we go. Uh, meet Lil, the German Karl who became Barbie. That's that's very funny. Right on, right on point. Which um, is true, actually, historically. And I was going to say this. Oh, this was one thing I was going to say on Twitter, but it, it's ironic now. You go through Twitter, the same people praising this movie and its success at the box office were the ones dumping all over Sound of Freedom because they um, understand the significance of culture. They understand the the success of films like Sound of Freedom awaken people to serious concerns they want suppressed. Just as Barbie elevates an extremely dangerous and pernicious point of view that is literally leading to the mental illness of millions and millions of young women around the world as we speak. And it will get worse rather than better. I mean, it says all men are evil. I mean, there's no question about that through this film. There's no good positive male character. Fatherhood is a waste of time. Motherhood is counterproductive. Don't waste your time. Uh, being pregnant is something to be ashamed of. Instead, go kill your babies. With that said, everybody, that's it. That's the Barbie analysis from a legal standpoint. Go watch Critical Drinkers, uh, a breakdown of it, uh, among others. We're going to go over to Rumble right now. I'm going to share the link one more time before we go. Uh, I got everything by the Super Chats. If your Field of Greens promo is bad, does that make you a pathetic juke? <laughs> I, hey, Ginger Ninja, not bad. All right, we're going to do it. We're going to end on YouTube. Come over to Rumble. I'll share the link from Locals. You can come over to Locals also. Ending on YouTube. In three, and we're talking Trump people because holy crap, it's a Trump, it's a Trump loser tonight. It's it's endless. Ending well, we first, but our first bonus before talking about Trump will be uh, the man that really they're going after Trump for the current occupant of the White House. Oh, yeah, okay. Move it, everyone. That's the enticement. Come on over to Rumble, vivabarnslaw.locals.com, fieldofgreens.com. Thank you all. Not open the window. I need to close the window. Okay. One day I'll get this. Remove ending on YouTube. Come over to Lo Rumble or Locals. Three, two, one, now. All right, Robert. So the hold on. Let me see the next. I, I have my list up in the backdrop here. But um, 
Uh, ah, Biden, Biden corruption. Robert, okay, so now th- th- they're, it's, it's, it's like incontrovertible concrete to the extent the whistleblower is not perjuring himself and, and exposing himself to all sorts of things. We now basically know that the Department of Justice, just us, uh, deliberately dragging its feet in, you know, tell me if this is the aspect of the Biden corruption, dragging its feet in the investigation into Hunter, uh, you know, taking so long to bring charges that it's too long, ultimately, in some cases. But what is the latest now on, is it on Joe Biden himself? Yeah, I mean, because what, well, basically what we got confirmation from, uh, Senator Grassley released the original whistleblower report. Or, uh, the And then there were whistleblowers from both the IRS and the Federal Bureau of Investigation who testified before Congress. And then and then they were doing interviews later. And what they provided was extraordinary, that basically everything that was ever asserted about Biden uh, is true and then some. That Trump was impeached in impeachment one for the crime, for asking about the crimes that Biden, Biden had actually committed. And so they've got the app, they've got emails, they've got documents, they've got texts, they've got a money trail. They they had it all and they had it all from the beginning. They had it from the whistleblowers who came forward. They had it from the uh, the uh, Hunter Biden laptop that they had. They had it from independent uh, reports, suspicious activity reports that came in from a bunch of financial institutions and banks. And what it showed was a simple quid pro quo and that they actually put this in writing, the people at Burisma. So as soon as the Maidan coup took place, where the the legitimately elected government of Ukraine was overthrown by a range of protests that began in uh, with what's called the Maidan coup, some call it Maidan revolution, take your pick, whatever it was, an unelected government came to power. That unelected government came to power. There were good actors and bad actors within it. And some of the good actors was a local prosecutor wanting to look at various corruption concerning the Privat Bank and concerning the uh, Burisma Corporation, where basically you had a secretary of the interior uh, who was who controlled oil leases, also having ownership interest in the oil company that he was given all the oil leases to old school oligarchic politics. So this happens. And Barack Obama, knowing what he's doing, by the way puts Joe Biden as vice president in charge of all Ukrainian policy with the new Maidan government. Soon as that happens, Burisma, then now under criminal investigation for massive corruption in the billions of dollars, hires Hunter Biden, which anybody looking at knew what was really about, but they had various excuses for it. No, but the, the, it's it's just in your face. Like there, other than the fact that he's set aside a, a crackhead who's, you know, had all sorts of problems his entire life. It makes no sense, except on the most superficial level, that they hire Hunter Biden, VP Biden's son, at that time for that purpose, despite having zero, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Credentials, zero experience, zero value added, except for the access to the man. And what was extraordinary is all of this was in writing. They said this payment, $5 million here and then another $5 million later, is so that your is so that Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden, will quash any criminal prosecution of us. I mean, it's literally right in writing. So they also had tape recordings that had Joe Biden on it. They had texts. They had supporting financial documents. They were the FBI was getting this from multiple directions. They were getting it from the Ukrainian informer. They were getting it from the uh, all the suspicious activity reports being filed by banks, and they got it off of Hunter Biden's own laptop. 
So they had independent, multiple evidentiary sources for the one of the most obvious quid pro quo corruption schemes in American political history, involving the vice president of the United States leveraging his son, using his son as the money launderer uh, to to do a quid pro quo. And he's on record bragging about how he shut down the prosecution, but he claimed he was doing so in the name of uh, in uh, cleaning up corruption. In fact, it was just the opposite. It was to cover up corruption. And the money gets transferred. Joe Biden then get, goes in and leverages, hey, we in the U.S. have all this money. We control you made on government. You'll be cut off from our financial aid unless you do what I say. And what I demand is that this prosecutor be fired. That prosecutor is then fired. The case against Burisma is then closed. The rest of the money is then transferred. It's as obvious quid pro quo corruption as ever. And they had evidentiary proof of it from multiple authenticated sources. And uh, attorney, uh, you know, the and the and the Godfather towards the end, he uh, Marlon Brando's character goes, "I didn't know until now it was Barzini all along." Well, it turns out it was Barr all along. Attorney General Barr, the same Attorney General Barr, who Epstein magically died on his on his watch, whose own father was involved in giving Epstein his first ever gig. That's who Barr is. Uh, also, it was during his tenure that the FBI and the IRS sat on all this. And the the multiple whistleblowers have now come forward that the Justice Department under Biden has completely shut them down, not allowed them to issue subpoenas, not allowed them to issue search warrants, not allowed them to even interview certain key witnesses, not allowed them to develop certain key evidence, not allowed to even go to a grand jury and present the evidence for the possibility of indictment. And then many of these whistleblowers are Democrats or independents. They have no political bone to fight, have a long extended history, as people like Professor Jonathan Turley and others have noted. So what we have is the most egregious example of extraordinary corruption. And as Trump's pointed out, his view is this is impeachable behavior and and because it's connected to current policy. That the reason why Biden continues to wage war and support the war in Ukraine, for which the U.S. is the critical supporter, for which Ukraine is the primary benefactor and the war propagated solely and wholly because of the Biden administration, it would have ended in a peace deal already, but for that, is because of his longstanding corrupt ties to Ukraine. You dig deeper and you find contracts are being written up as we speak for major corporations like BlackRock and others to divvy up all the land. The, the, the best resources of Ukraine in a post-war uh, uh, realm. So this isn't being done for the Ukrainian people. This is being done to enrich Biden's corrupt allies. And Trump correctly connects the two. So, uh, But what we found this week was extraordinary, unimpeachable evidence of the worst corruption in the history of American presidential politics outside of Lyndon Baines Johnson. And I always like to say the best way to understand Joe Biden is Imagine Lyndon Baines Johnson had a really dumb younger brother. That's Joe Biden. The question is this. I mean, what are they doing with the whistleblower's testimony? They're listening to it. They're hearing it. They're holding committee hearings and whatever. But what is going what to they happen? Can do because the, uh, the Justice Department is controlled by the Biden administration beyond impeachment. I mean, increasingly, it's obvious the only remedy is to go through the impeachment process. They're not going to get a conviction in the Senate, but at least begin fully, formally that process because the Justice Department refuses to do anything about this. Robert, the, the $3 billion, there was re- uh, reports a couple months ago that the Pentagon made a mistake on $3 billion in Six arms. 
Six billion. Now, th- th- I, there are some conflicting stories as to whether or not they overpaid three billion or undervalued the mil- the arms that they were sending by three billion, which allowed them to send three billion more. Do you know which well, way? It what goes? they ultimately said is that there's six billion that was spent in one way, shape, or form that they can't account for. Six billion. Like, yeah. oops, <laughs> lost that in the mail. <laughs> Unbelievable. So now the next steps, they've got these whistleblowers. Uh, first, I'll be asked the practical question. What happens to these whistleblowers for the rest of their lives? Are they some of them are now getting uh, prosecuted or indicted as well? I mean, they're supposed to getting be protected, but we'll see. Um, I mean, we see anybody that steps forward and exposes anything or questions or contests anything gets challenged as Trump is currently. Um, so, you know, that the Trump trial date uh, was it not, not a terrible trial date. The judge said for late May of 2024. Prosecution won in December of 2023. Defense wanted an indefinite stay. My view is that was a tactical mistake. If you were on the watching the bourbons at vivabarnslaw.locals.com, where everybody is indeed above average, even the trolls. The uh, the What I mentioned was I thought it was a tactical mistake for them not to give this kind of judge a specific date. Certain judges are what I call calendaring judges. A lot of your judges, uh, if you're into Myers-Briggs or SJ personality types, they're not intuitive personality types, but they're very structured. And if you don't give them a date, they get real annoyed. Um, and it's just, a pra- and if you, I hadn't studied her in great detail, but I'd studied her enough to figure that out. Uh, that, that she's, the and having been in front of many judges on these kind of cases, in these kind of situations seeking continuances, you figure out what kind of judge they are. Are they the kind of judge that's flexible and they'll just kick it? Or are there a judge that just wants a date? Are they want, do they want an early date? Do they want a late date? And had, I think they gone in and said, we want December, 2024, I think she would have given it to them. And, and the other second thing to do, whenever you do a mo, this is practical advice out there for lawyers. If you're going to do a motion to continue, lay out in details, come up with what looks like a, make your plan look uber reasonable. I mean, I've done this in many cases. In the Snipes case, they were trying to keep me out of the case on grounds that no continuance could be allowed. And so sat there for 48 hours, produced another motion, 35 pages long, explaining why a a very short continuance was valid and uh, replacement substitution of counsel necessary. And a judge who everybody told me would never reverse went and did exactly that. He reversed. If you know how to lay it out to them, they should have put in in detail, okay, we're going to spend this much time on this category of discovery. Here's why. Here's how much available time I have. Here's what time I'm competing with. Then I'm going to do this on these motion practices. And then I'm going to do, you know, explain in such a way that the judge looks and goes, geez, that's faster than I could ever do it. And he's and they're asking for 18 months. And then list all the dates, all the other trials that got at least 18 months. You know, just and, and especially... Use the government's own cases against them. When the government gets to imprison someone pending trial, like the January 6th cases, by golly, they always, oh, that's two years, two and a half years, three years, four years. Use that against them in cases like this. And I think had they done so, they would have got it. That being said, there are people who really don't under, Mark Levin included, who really don't under, it's the problem with almost 90% of legal commentary is made by people who either hate Trump. Uh, or never practice. So Mark Levin doesn't hate Trump, but he's, to my knowledge, never practiced criminal defense. Same with some others. I think, I mean, Charlie Kirk got mistaken on this. Uh, I can tell you uh, the odds that the May date takes place are still low. The, here's your typical federal judge's scheduling. They have to schedule the first date within 70 days 
of arraignment. So your first date, you pretty much never going to happen in a complex case. Almost no case happens within 70 days. Then, uh, and so then you get your first continuance, and that's based on the first round of discovery. Almost always, the, what is the judge wants you to come in two months or so before the trial date and say, well, you know, we did try, judge, but look, we got this, we got this, we got this. And in a majority of federal cases like this one, a second continuance is granted. So well, what is I most, can, these are not hard say, dates. Let me stop you there. The, the, the discovery that we're talking about, everybody talks about discovery. There's 1.1 million pages of documents, however many tens of thousands of hours of video. Discovery, as most people understand it in civil cases, you have a party to the suit, you sit them down, you ask them about the case. What does discovery look like in the case of a federal indictment? Do you, do you depose Anybody and everybody that you need you, on you, the you, evidence? You can't. In a criminal case, you have none of the, I mean, that, and that's where you always use the analogy of the government. So if the government in this case, if you really look at it, uh, because they were starting to, they were, the referral happened in late 2017, uh, I mean, sorry, late 2021, it took them two years to bring an indictment. And they have the power of the grand jury, and they don't have any restrictions on classified review by lawyers or agents. So that's where you always emphasize you go. All you get is a federal criminal case is whatever discovery the government gives you. You have no right to depose anybody. Uh, your rights to subpoena are limited to trial or an evidentiary hearing pre-trial. Uh, so and you often have to beg for whatever discovery you can get because the government's always holding information back. There's no open file policy in the federal government. So you often have to have motions to compel discovery, et cetera. Now, smart prosecutors won't play games if they want a fast trial. Uh, but these prosecutors are too greedy and too uh, consistently unethical to honor such rules and restrictions. So you can almost guarantee their stuff they're hiding. And so the uh, and that includes exculpatory information under the Brady U.S. Supreme Court and Giglio information, which is impeachment information. So basically, you have to use private investigators to try to investigate what the government did, and you have no power to compel them to do so. And you don't have the federal law enforcement power behind you to do so. So it means that typically a competent, capable defense investigation takes twice as long as the prosecutor took. That's where, you know, that's four years, right? Now, this information was not relayed to the judge, right? So this was some of the weaknesses in it. Um, this was an opportunity to not, I, I said at the time they did a cookie cutter presentation, which is understandable, but that's for your average case, not a case like this, where you just go with a template of, hey, we got these 25 things, judge, let's kick this for a little while, da, da, da. And if you have laid back judges, no problem. But if you have a, a, a tight calendaring judge like this court is, that was a tactical mistake. But it's not likely to lead to an actual May trial, in my opinion. Uh, it, I still think December 2020. And if you look at May, she's trying to split the baby, you know, after February and March, April primaries, but before the peak of convention season in the summer and in the early in the election season in the fall. What does that mean? It means she doesn't want a trial between then and November. So the more likely trial date was always December 2024. Um, and so the and then, of course, you know, if, if the appeals court takes any issue up or the U.S. Supreme that, Court does, that will automatically delay the whole thing. Well, anyway. and then and then stop. Well, I have two questions about this. One is the constitutional requirement to have the trial within a, you know, a speedy trial. And so the judge, I presume, will not say, well, I can't just put it off indefinitely because then the defendant can say, well, my constitutional rights to a speedy trial have been violated. Flip side, from the defendant's side, you wouldn't want to renounce to that uh, without limitation because then you can get a prosecution that would say, okay, well, you've renounced to ever invoking violations to your speedy trial provision. 
And so we'll just drag our feet for however long and, and, and torture you forever. Um, but the there's going to be questions about the admissibility of, of the documentation information that was obtained in D.C. jurisdiction that was then imported into Florida. And if, if, if any of that, if there's a debate that goes to appeals on the admissibility of any of that, the solicitor client documentation that was obtained in a different jurisdiction from which this, this indictment is being brought, end of day, end of end of a May 2024 trial or like immediately. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that it is two components. The speedy trial rights under the Sixth Amendment, the Supreme Court says, can be waived, but up to a limit. They can't be waived into perpetuity, um, and you can't require a defendant to do so. And then the Speedy Trial Act itself, the <coughs> statute, gives the government and the public also an additional interest beyond the defendant in the right to a speedy trial. Um, but the court noted that these kind of exceptions that were being listed by the defense are the ones that properly are provided for. So she chose May because Trump's team refused to give a date. That's why she chose May. It's, mm -hmm. it's that simple. She's like, there's no way this is getting done in December. I'll give you another five months or so. But this judge, even though she's relatively new to the bench, uh, so may not be as familiar, uh, you will find it is rare in a white-collar case that only one motion to continue is granted. The norm is at least two. And to give people an idea, on the average, many of my cases have been three, four, five. right? And the reason they do that, a calendaring judge doesn't want to assume you're going to be right about everything taking time. Wants you to document it at each stage, right? So you're going to come forward and say, so if I have a rocket docket judge, I don't propose a long date. I, you know, say, Hey, move it out 90 days. But if I, if I got an issue and I want to let you know, I, I anticipate these issues. If I got, I'm going to come back, you know, 60 days before. And that that's all you do. It's, 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 uh, but they didn't quite do it. And it's a reflective of attack. But again, I don't think that, the likelihood that Trump goes to trial is still low. That takes place in May because of the possibility of another motion to continue because of the possibility of appellate issues, appellate or Supreme Court getting involved in the case prior to pretrial. Even if he were to go to trial in May, his the sentencing likely wouldn't be uh, scheduled until after the election. And even then he'd be granted bail pending appeal in all likelihood because of the novel issues. So all you be able to say, so even if the trial goes in May, he ain't going to jail before election. Uh, it's, it is still the case that election day will be verdict day as to Trump. All right. Do, and, and we don't we don't need to flesh over some of the issues that might go to appeals on this. I mean, we've talked about it at length um, in prior streams. And, and, we'll, uh, and once those motions are filed, then we'll discuss them in detail once the briefing is done on them. But the, the New York case is currently scheduled for March and it's back in state court uh, because a Clinton appointee decided that Trump's removal of the state court to federal court uh, was he, he rejected the removal on some very questionable decisions, again, reflecting some tactical errors, in my view, by Trump's defense team. So uh, Trump had asked that this this is the state charges for the uh, entries on the Stormy Daniels payments and how they were itemized and, and, and referenced uh, be be brought out to federal court. What was the what was the justification or the rationale for the request? So, in, in any case where in a uh, someone is being prosecuted, that's an officer of the federal government, and in this context, officer is very broad because it was meant to deal with. They wanted to avoid the problem. The Supreme Court itself has said this, <laughs> that this federal law was designed to avoid a constitutional conflict. What happens if a local state prosecutor starts using their criminal power to prevent? the federal government from being able to perform its duties. 
This is why I think impeachment is an exclusive remedy for indictment of the president as well. Uh, the same principle to me applies. The court has recognized the validity of this principle. So what you have to prove is three things, that the indictment arises from something you did while you were a federal officer, a federal official of any kind. Officer, by the way, has different definitions in different contexts. Interesting thing, in this context, it's clearly meant to be everybody, but the state argued otherwise. New York said, no, no, this, this doesn't usually apply to the president. We'll get into that, by the way, when we talk about the 14th Amendment. Interesting admission by the state of New York in that respect. But the uh, it is true in most contexts, officer doesn't cover the president. But in this context, it clearly was intended to. So uh, there's no question. All of the allegation of the indictment concerned conduct Trump engaged in while he was president. The second aspect is that the conduct arise from his duties as a federal officer or that he have defenses that arise from uh, federal law, federal preemption. The goal, again, being preventing local state prosecutors from weaponizing their criminal prosecutorial power in ways to interfere with or impair the operation of the federal government uh, and, you know, be basically extortion and blackmail over federal officials. You could see how the whole the whole thing falls apart if a random local prosecutor can say, if you don't do what I want, I'll indict you. Right. To give an example of this. Uh, the L.A. County jail was, that I was involved in tangentially in these cases was one of the most corrupt jails in all of America. Gangs ran it, but not the gangs you thought of. The gangs were part of the police. The police had formed their own gangs that ran uh, with initiation rights and everything else. And the feds got, you know, the feds finally started doing something about it after a bunch of us had raised complaints concerning it. And the re answer of the L.A. sheriff was to put the FBI agents under criminal investigation and try to indict them. This is an example of how the whole system falls apart if you allow local government people to indict federal officials, uh, especially for what appears to be here a federal crime. And so now I thought when they brought in the 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 recusal, well, removal action, remove it to federal court, that they would list it as a related case given another federal judge had already ruled on the subpoena challenge in the same case previously. And it happened to be a Trump appointee, but also a judge who had expressed skepticism about the nature of the case. It doesn't appear Trump's team did that. So they got an old Clinton appointee. And then, uh, the, and then at the evidentiary hearing that the court scheduled, they presented very little evidence, which... You know, so they blew an opportunity to develop a great evidentiary record, and the judge piggybacked off of that. And his core of his claim was that there were some that was less credible than others, uh, was that, that Trump's behavior was purely personal and had nothing to do with the office of the presidency. And second, that was alleged in the indictment. He assumed he really favors the indictment. It's obvious his political bias. Oh, this is a terrible crime. and thought all this ridiculous garbage. Uh, the uh, and then but then he also says that even though there's specific federal laws at issue and even though prior precedent says where specific federal laws are at issue in this context, they preempt and create a defense to state criminal prosecution. He says not in this instance. <laughs> and he says it's, it's kind of like ballot fraud, right? You know, ballot fraud is uh, exempt from this. Yeah, that has nothing to do with federal election law. That's why. Might be a federal election you're getting elected to, but that's a state crime. That's not here. Here, the only crime being alleged that elevates this to a felony is a federal crime. That means it's federal preemption defense. 
My, my favorite part was pretending this had nothing to do with Trump's official duties. Look at the contradiction between this and all their Westfall Act cases, like the Covington kids cases. What did the Covington kids have to do with Senator Warren's official duties in the Senate? Oh, well, her, her statements tangentially were related to policy, potential policy, and therefore... She couldn't she identify felt- any. She, she couldn't identify a single policy. The, she didn't make the statement in the Senate, didn't make the Senate from a committee hearing, and didn't relate to pending legislation. It related to her personal opinion of the Covington kids. There was no federal legislation that could even concern the Covington kids beyond her immunity for suit. And so the same with Congresswoman, now Secretary of the Interior, Deborah Halland. What do the federal courts do then? Oh, that's a very broad what concerns public duty. That's that's really, if it, if it could possibly concern your reputation, reputation in the community. Hmm, isn't that what Trump is concerned with? His reputation in the community as president? So the same federal judges that say you can't sue a senator and can't sue a congresswoman uh, for libel and defamation for things that had nothing to do with their duties, turn around and say that, oh, this couldn't possibly relate to Trump's presidential duties. Directly contradictory rulings. So uh, we'll see. But again, that point was not made by Trump's counsel in the case. So uh, in my view, while they got a difficult judicial draw that I think was in part a product of tactical error, and they have good grounds to appeal on this issue, uh, which may raise issues about whether or not the March trial date also ever takes place in the New York case. Uh, they, they, Trump is not getting the benefit of the best defense now in both cases, which does raise concerns about how well they're going to defend him going forward. Um, did I have any questions about that? Well, no. I mean, we're just we're operating on the basis that he, there will be a conviction at this, but it's going to be it's going to be a state level conviction, Robert. That does make the dumbest it. Thing the judge said. Oh, there's no reason whatsoever to question whether New York will be completely fair with Donald Trump. I mean, that's just a lie by a federal judge. That's just a federal judge flat out lying. And it's an 89 year old Clinton appointee. And he just, you know, that that's where his dishonesty came forward. However, the better evidentiary presentation to make that lie easy to prove on the, on the record on appeal would have been to have people like Richard Barris and others do surveys to prove how it's impossible to get an impartial jury in, in Manhattan. So this is where his team is. Trump's team is not up to snuff so far. One place they are up to snuff so far is the state of Georgia. But hold on, actually, just one second. The, the in um, the New York case, those are state charges, correct? Those are state. That's a state indictment. State indictment that alleges an intention to violate a federal law. Okay, but then the obvious question now is: even if Trump is elected, he he, he cannot pardon himself for state crimes, correct? No, no, correct. So hypothetically. I mean, Trump that would directly to- pose the question and, and, and would force the Supreme Court to get involved. And that's where my view is the, the ultimate solution they should be roadmapping out now for the Supreme Court, regardless of what, what the lower courts do with the issue, is that impeachment is the exclusive means by which you can remove someone from the presidency. And and the, the argument you've raised it a couple of times before would be impeach him. If he's convicted, then you have the basis then you for can a indict, Then you can convict, then you can sentence, then you can incarcerate, but you can't otherwise. Otherwise, the, we run into this practical problem that we're Well, this practical problem is he can go to jail in New York State for, uh, you know, that he cannot pardon no, himself for. Any local prosecutor could at any time lock up the president of the United States and prevent him from doing his job. I mean, it's a, it's a joke. It's ridiculous when you think about the practical consequences, as we'll get into some of these other cases. 
All right, well, I mean, just, just all they care about is getting Trump. So they don't care what rules they eviscerate, what precedents they establish, what policies they put down. They don't care how much it's completely hypocritical and contradictory uh, to their own prior uh, decisions and prior like and analogous cases. But, you know, the rest of us should be concerned with it because it leads to places that make no sense. Well, it leads to a place where you could have a president elected who is locked up in jail at a state jail. And not for, not for, I mean, I guess I'm trying to think of cases where he could have committed crimes before running for president, whatever. For, for, well, acts- you could blackmail and extort him at any time, right? You, I, I could be a state prosecutor, small county, say, hey, uh, President Biden, unless you do what I say on this policy, I'm going to uh, go arrest you tomorrow and drag you into jail. You no longer have a constitutional government then. As, and and it can, he can be an elected sitting president who would have to serve his time at a state state jail for state conviction that he can't even pardon himself for if he gets reelected. Which you can have no Secret Service protection. I mean, I mean you, you just think it through. It's insane. It's pure insanity. The uh, and, and, and the people justifying this have not thought it through at all. Yeah, well, I don't think anyone's going to... that. The accusation of having thought it through too much is not one that you're going to hear too often. Robert, before we get to the Georgia one, before I fall way too far behind on the rumble rants that have been coming in here, let's just do all of these as quickly as possible. Take three minutes. Uh, Monty Furness says, what if the lady is just announced... What if the lady is just someone who's dressed like a conservative and is paid to make conservatives look anti-Semitic? That's one, that intro. Kitty says... Thanks for another awesome Sunday lineup. Monty Furtis says, Margot Robbie was also in Suicide Squad. Haven't seen it. Randy Edwards says, Harris's parents were not lawfully in the United States at the time of her birth. They did not have legal immigration laws. Uh, they, they, sorry, they did not have illegal immigration laws when the 14th Amendment was ratified uh, or when SCOTUS opined on the subject. We're not getting back into that. We talked about it a lot last week. Troublemaker Jonah. Barbie was the German escort nearly named after Klaus Barbie. We got that one. T1990 says the character's name is Harley Quinn that Robbie played or player. She's the Joker's girlfriend. Reawaken, uh, that is be awake, not woke, says I honestly am so busy. I can watch you guys as much as I'd like, but keep it up. Viva and Barnes, you are all awesome. Thank you very much. T1990 says the man-hating started in second wave of feminism with people like Dorkin O'Dworkin and Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, Arkansas crime attorney, Little Rock in YouTube. The remake of Arthur had several scenes in the trailer that was not in the movie. The trailer was so much funnier than the movie. Randy Edward, the preamble clearly says to ourselves and our posterity, not to others and their posterity. Either the Constitution exists in its entirety or not at all. Arkansas crime attorney, Robert, what would you consider a heavy caseload in personal injury? I had 30 cases. The firm fired one of our attorneys because I closed seven cases last 120 days. They gave me all 40 plus cases of hers. Holy crab apples. Arkansas crime attorney, I am starting to get scared for my license given how bad shape these cases are in. Some going back to 2018 SJM response due tomorrow. I took a break to watch you guys. Felis Rufus 35, to paraphrase some guy who ran for president in the 80s, you can identify who in Congress is involved in the corruption because they will be the ones not pushing for charges. TX Lady Jane. So why haven't they taken a vote to impeach? Decent question. Arkansas crime attorney. My drug weapons cases in federal court in Arkansas normally take two to three years to get to trial or plea. Arkansas crime attorney. Robert, can he not sever or remove on federal question defense and shofar, which might be a Hebrew word yeah. for well, shofar? They, they did not, he, he did. And the judge said there's no federal questions at issue. 
Wow. Can Biden be charged with treason for his actions and bribery? Treason, everybody uses that, I think, a little too willy-nilly. There has to be a, a, legally, a war. Yeah, legally in America, treason is limited to that, which will be relevant later to our 14th, 14th Amendment discussion. But yeah, the one place where his lawyers are being very proactive is Georgia. Georgia. So they, they, they basically, they've obtained an order, and I don't know if it's good or bad anymore, Robert, that none of the judges in the Fulton district can hear, is it the civil case and or the indictment case or well, what or is he's filed a they can't hear his petition, so he's filed a petition for writ of mandamus on the grounds that the uh, grand jury process was com completely contaminated, and that the prosecutor's office not only has to be disqualified on a go forward basis, but anything they've done has to be considered fruit of the you know poisoned fruit of the tree, and consequently. Basically, it would vacate the prior grand jury findings, vacate any evidence, require appointment of an independent grand, uh, independent prosecutor that likely would end any prosecution of Trump in Georgia. And the issue is the prosecutor keeps making it worse because the prosecutor is actually overtly fundraising, saying, I'm going to indict Trump. It Send me money now. It's it's exactly like what we saw in the McCloskey case. Who uh, Kim Gardner and the well, I think state ultimately was forced to step down. Wasn't she? Missouri, yeah, they they uh, they get reelected, and you say that the corruption arises when they're appointed for life by political appointees. They're loyal and they're politicized, you know, at, for eternity. When they have to run for office or get elected, there's also corruption that happens there. So it's you're you're, you're doing trade offs as to whether or not you get appointment a judicial uh, judge is appointed or elected. Um, but hold on a second. Actually, just before I forget the question. Um, oh, the uh, mandamus. Sorry, Robert. Mandamus is, is an order for a public body to do or to not do something that they are legally required to do. In the case of Georgia, what is the object of the mandamus? Recusal or of the prosecution. Okay. Recusal of the prosecution because they are politicizing this to fundraise off of the announcements to indict. Creating a professional conflict of interest. And so the and what happened is the, the court recognized it raised issues that could, I guess, implicate every judge in Fulton County. And so the chief judge said this is being assigned to a judge outside of Fulton County who might not have who would not have any other conflict themselves. Um, so will the but it's good that they're, uh, you know, this is fighting a case tooth and nail top to bottom. And that's what Trump's lawyers in Georgia are doing a very good job of doing that he's not quite getting in his other, in the, in the D.C. case, in the Florida case, or the New York case so far. Uh, going to be a stupid question. What lick of difference is it going to make if they get a, a judge from outside of the Fulton County as opposed to a oh, judge? Oh, no political ties for the Fulton County, and so can, you know, rule whatever they want against the Fulton County prosecutor, knowing there'll be no political blowback. And outside of Fulton County, most of the judges throughout the rest of Georgia are more conservative-leaning. Fulton County is where you have a, a more liberal Democratic bias, and the prosecution's the most wacky of all. And so the uh, uh, this uh, there is no grounds to even pursue a Georgia case, but what? there's no grounds to pursue the January sixth case, and that isn't stopping Jack Smith. Okay, so I, I I still don't everybody out there the the Twitter handle that looks like Jack Smith. I don't think it's actually Jack Smith's account. It looks like it's not parody, but rather just following the news. Um, they, what do they call it, Robert? A target letter. So yeah. Trump got he gets a target letter, which, as far as I understand, in my limited Quebec schnook understanding of American criminal federal law, it is an opportunity for someone who uh, apparently is under investigation to come forward and speak with the grand jury, give testimony, give their position, presumably before they're indicted. Is, is, is a target letter anything more than that? 
Yes, the main the reason why they're given is to afford an opportunity to present without an accusation that they coerce testimony in violation of the Fifth Amendment. So that's why they give you fair notice. And okay. so the, that, that's the goal, because it, as a witness in front of a grand jury, you can't have your lawyer in there. So the uh, so it, it, it raises uh, compelled self-incrimination issues. It raises uh, compelled testimony outside the presence of representative counsel. Uh, it raises due process questions. So they send a target letter saying you have this opportunity to present. But by the way, you are a target, so it could be used against you. You won't have the right to counsel, so on and so forth. So that was the uh, Trump received it and published it to the world. And the criminal statutes that they cited show that how utterly lacking in independence this Justice Department special counsel is. And there's separate issues with whether this special counsel's actions are constitutional in the first place. And those questions are, it looks like, will be litigated in the Florida case, probably as well in the D.C. case. But uh, in that, you know, whether he has the constitutional authority goes back to an old question about special counsels, but even more so here, given the game playing he did. But essentially, the various left wing legal groups out there, uh, some of them are actually called lawfare, for example, others just security. You know, basically, it's the deep state's legal community drafted a memorandum of how to do it indict Trump. And it looks like Jack Smith is following it all the way through, showing the complete lack of independence in the Justice Department. Um, and the I, basically, as we'll talk about with the Michigan electors case, it's criminalizing disagreement. It's that. And as we'll talk about the January 6th SCOTUS case, it, it's all about, hey, you disagreed with wh- who won the election. We're going to call that a crime. You, you, you tried to present arguments to the House. We're going to call that a crime. You tried to present arguments to the Senate. We're going to call that a crime. You told the public you didn't believe it was the that Biden actually won. We're going to call that a crime now disagreement with the state is now a crime disagreement with the official approved narrative is now a crime and that's what they're trying to do in the january 6 cases they're trying to say it's a federal civil rights violation because he was denying people the right to vote by challenging whether or not their vote was correctly counted how is that false certification it presumes there could never be a good faith basis to uh, or any even subjective basis because they got to prove both here. They got to prove that Trump knew that he lost the election and uh, that uh, it was reasonable for him to believe that. Uh, uh, That they have to prove that both aspects, even if it was unreasonable for him to believe it, if he actually believed it, there's no fraud because these are conspiracy to defraud, conspiracy to violate civil rights. You have to have a criminal intent and purpose behind it. And that criminal intent and purpose has, what they're alleging here is you contested the election. We're going to call that false certification, obstruction of a proceeding, corruptly impairing a proceeding, corruptly violating someone's civil rights under your office. It, it has gotten to the point where it's almost obviously by design impossible to keep up and to distinguish between these cases. This is not the Georgia pending indictment of find me 11,000 votes, that's election interference. This is related to the alternate slate of electors and the plan to present the argument that uh, Trump could present his alternate slate of electors that Pence could then ratify and approve and uh, name Trump president, correct? That's correct. And and George is a little bit of a variation of that. And it relates to the Michigan case too, because the Michigan electors is directly tied to this. Uh, Basically, they're saying, so the only crime they're alleging all the mostly old people. 
is they got together on the Capitol on the day in which electors get together, and they signed a document and sent it to the archives and to Congress saying, we're Trump's electors. And they're saying that's a forged document. That's a fraudulent document. That's a false document. For which under Michigan law, Michigan penal law, it's 752.248, you have to prove a forged public record. The public record must be capable of being received as legal proof. So it's not just something that purports to be a public record. It must actually be one. Uh, You must know it is false in a material manner. And you must intend to defraud someone of property or it caused them direct injury by intending to deceive. And similar, the false affidavit election statute requires that you falsely attest you qualify as a for registration for voting or a candidate. Not clear that even applies. 168.933A. Not clear that even applies to the electors clause. But basically, here's the problem. The affidavit alleges that, hey, you said you were the electors. You weren't. Democrats won in Georgia, Michigan, according to Governor Whitmer. And so the and so that makes it false. But the statute itself requires they at least allege that they knew it was false and that they intended to deceive. It doesn't even allege it. There's not a single allegation of intent in the entire affidavit. It is legally insufficient on its face. And an honest, honorable court, who knows whether you can find those in Michigan these days, uh, would dismiss this case immediately because it doesn't even reach the minimal threshold of at least alleging intent. Okay, now, now you might have the curse of too much knowledge and too much information. I think we have to back this up one step. First of all, I, I was listening to some of these reports break down the Michigan indictment of these alternate electors, and they're saying they met in a basement the day of the election to concoct this fraudulent scheme. Explain. We've talked about it. We talked about the. You've talked about it on Viva Barnes. VivaBarnesLaw.Locals.com, the alternate slate of electors as a constitutional legal theory. A 30-second summary just so that people who are watching for the first time understand what the rationale was behind presenting an alternate slate of electors who were not saying, who were saying we're the alternate slate and we're going to argue with those who purport to be the electors. Explain the constitutional argument for the theory in the first place and whether or not it had ever been done before in one form or another. So, to, to take it all back, I was not in favor of this particular remedial approach, but we'll explain what they were thinking when they went with it. My belief was that the way to attack the election was to deta- was to simply have a meaningful evidentiary investigation into whether it was a constitutionally compliant election, which merely required that the that the state legislature's rules be the rules governing the election in each state because the Constitution explicitly in the context of the presidency only gives the legislature of each state that authority. And and that was before the Supreme Court had expanded what role the judiciary could play in it this past couple of months ago. And so I said, look, we should look at whether only constitutionally qualified people voted. In other words, did anybody vote who did not fit the rules under the state legislature set by the of each state for voting in the presidential election. Second, and, and this would include in some states you couldn't be registered at, to vote. You were not con- you were not qualified to vote if you were registered at an absent address, if you were registered at a post office box, if you were registered at a parking lot, uh, so on and so forth. And and that you also couldn't register if you were registered at another state. Uh, you also weren't qualified to vote if you were dead uh, the time you supposedly voted, right? 
So only constitutionally qualified people voted. Let's investigate that. Secondly, was the method by which they cast the ballot constitutionally qualified? In the case of a mass mail-in election like 2020 was, the state legislature's rules required that certain things about how the ballot was delivered, the chain of custody for the ballot, that gets into drop boxes and other issues. But independent of that, at a minimum required that in, in many states, not all states, that the signature matched the signature on the voter file. So did they cast their ballot in a constitutionally qualified way? And third, was the canvas and counting of the ballot constitutionally qualified? What does that mean? The state legislature sets rules for how they canvas all the ballots before they count the ballots. And if their procedures were, were invalid under the legislative rules, then you had a constitutionally unqualified election. Or, and then the question was, were there enough ballots in all three categories combined to raise doubts? That was the, that's the legal standard. Raise doubts about who won. I, fo- I wanted that focus. And it said, let's go to the state legislators. Let's go to the governors. Let's go to the election officials. Let's go to the courts, state courts, and then the federal courts. If all five deny relief, Let's and I thought they all would. Let's prepare this for Congress because Congress has an established history of resolving elector disputes in the presidential election contest. They've done so in different. There's been objections raised in multiple elections by somebody in the Congress. Indeed, Democrats have raised objections to every time a Republican has won since Eisenhower. Um, I mean, so that gives you an idea. Sometimes it's fully addressed by the Senate and the House. Sometimes it's not. The, uh, the, the, there was the big dispute in 2000 with Bush Gore. There was the big dispute in 1960 over the Hawaii electors between Kennedy and Nixon. Uh, you go further back, there was a big dispute in 1876, which went on for months, in which an independent commission was set up and a light electoral count act was passed by Congress in the first place. Uh, and then you go further back, there were disputes almost every decade or so. There was some dispute about objecting, and it just goes all the way back to the history. Now, as to why they thought their remedy was appropriate. Uh, now, I think all this was they got caught up in a trap, multiple traps, honeypots, red flags, red herrings. One was they got run down the computer chain of Dominion. And consequently, rather than focusing on signature matches, rather focusing on drop boxes, rather than focusing on whether they even canvassed or counted, for give an example, in Georgia and Arizona, it was my belief they had not even gone through the proper procedure to even assess whether the signatures matched, independent of whether the signatures did match, just did they even go to the right process? Whether the counting or canvassing of the ballot done constitutionally? In my view, it wasn't. Carrie Lake has detailed how it was not done that way in 2022, which is up for the going up for the Arizona Supreme Court as we speak. So, but instead of all those issues, they went down the Dominion rabbit hole. You know, where there's secret servers in, you know, Germany and Venezuela, secret software. And well, what were they, you know, did China have secret ballots? Did Trump petty secretly water ballot marked all the ballots? I, I, mean, every, I, I remember all of those things. Now, at the time, there was such a churning of information, the raiding of Germany and the seizing of the of the servers there. There, there ended up being maybe some legitimacy to the idea that some of the voter information was transferred to servers. in China. Uh, I believe it was China because of the company using it. The, the secret watermarks, tiny, tiny piece, because one Dominion only con- machines only controlled a small number of even counties. I mean, in, in, in Pennsylvania, it's a small minority of, of, of total ballots counted, even concerned Dominion. I knew earlier, but basically it was classic red herrings that would distract from the big problem. 
that would go increasingly crazy and conspiratorial. And people got on me because at the time we were critical, and I was particularly critical of Sidney Powell, of Lynn Wood, of Rudy Giuliani, of you know Jenna Ellis was only partially involved. The uh, of of all these strategies, critical of the Dominion strategies, critical of the of all the German and Venezuelan all that nonsense, Chinese secret ballots and watermark ballots and garbage. It's also very critical of the QAnon movement. Very critical of this. Uh, people forget they were trying to tell Trump to invoke martial law. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was dumb. Cra- it was like, okay, this screams honeypot. This screams trap. This screams red herring. And unfortunately, I was screaming in the distance because everybody went down the, the, the crazy now, Gi- path. Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Linwood, I think, to a, to the same degree. Oh, the, and no question. And, and what do they do? They burned up their legal career, damaged their client's cause and case, and uh, the and ultimately led to some of the overzealous, to put it kindly, actions on January 6th. Hmm. And it was all a trap. It was all a setup. Uh, and we now know government informants and infiltrators were all over the place concerning but so their solution was, let's go back to way back. It, like, here's what I wanted for Congress to happen. That's the last step was we we a, a House member object to the certification of any election where we had reason to believe that more votes were in doubt uh, as to whether they were constitutionally qualified than the margin of victory. Uh, and my proposal was don't propose alternative electors. Uh, don't try to come to a determination as to who won, because the whole point is we don't know who won. And instead, go the constitutional path. The constitutional path is the House then organizes. There's insufficient. Uh, if somebody doesn't have an electoral majority, which is what would have happened if the, that was enforced in that manner, then the House votes by state delegation. Now, Trump had a clear, clear political edge. Didn't mean he would win it necessarily, if anybody understands who Congress is. But I wanted Al Gore to do this in 2000 because this is the constitutional process. It would mass. It would set a nice precedent and it would mass educate the American public about how this process should work, that the political branch should ultimately make this decision of elected officials. Instead, their proposal was, let's get Pence to just say our electors are the right electors. I was not in favor of that because I thought tactically it would never work and politically it would backfire. Now, that being said, there was exact history and precedent to support them. And it goes back to the very founding of the country. There were disputed electors in the 1796 election disputed electors in the 1800 election, where the vice president decided to weigh in. Alexander Hamilton said it was the power of the vice president to decide which electors to pick. So the idea that you could have two different electors submitted to the House and Senate, and the vice president pick one or the other, goes all the way back to the founding of the country. It happened again in 1960 in the Hawaii case. Well, look, I, I, I can't, Robert, I can't, it's like we're living in two different planets because I have an article in the backdrop that I was going to bring up where I, I'm trying to get to the punchline is how Politico distinguishes it. But this was, this was what a lot of people rely on. It says, uh, by December 1960, it was clear Kennedy had won. Only Hawaii's result remained in doubt. Nixon had prevailed by just 140 votes. A recount was underway yet up. Nixon Hawaii's electors met and cast their three votes in an official ceremony, but nearby Kennedy's three electoral nominees gathered and signed their own certificates, delivering them to Washington as though Kennedy had won the state. The episode. So I want to, I want to exactly the same. So, and I can tell you where they got the idea from this, by the way, was why I was skeptical of it, but the, uh, the, the wasn't just the early historical examples, 1876, two different slates were submitted all the way through this. That was the biggest, disputed presidential election in American history. That's when his fraudulency, the first 
uh, was elected. We don't have his fraudulency, the second in the White House. Um, and it again happened in 1960, but also it happened again as proposed by Democrats in 2020. They created a special commission about how to deal with what might happen in the 2020 election where they published the different steps. Legal scholars did the same thing. And one of their protocols of what the Democrats planned on doing, if they didn't like what was happening at the state level, was to submit their own slate of electors. So that's where Giuliani and the rest of them got the idea. I was trying to tell people the fact that it came from those people is reading isn't to stay away from it, go elsewhere. If you can't get the, the House to, to deny the election, you're not going to get Pence to do it. Did Pence have the power? Of course he did. Well, I always said Pence was a neocon in disguise and a complete coward by nature. There was no chance he was going to go through with it. Um, that's just who he was. You were much, you had a much higher chance. It was already an outside shot to begin with, but you had a much higher chance of the House and the Senate voting no on certifying an election in doubt than you had them saying yes to alternative electors. But putting that aside as political tactics, they are completely within their constitutional and legal history to contest the election. And these electors in Michigan did nothing wrong at all, not even an allegation that they thought what they were doing was false forgery or fraud, all of which must be required for the criminal crime to even be alleged by the corrupt attorney general of Michigan. Um, but the, the same is true of Trump. There's just no evidence of any, even if you took the ludicrous proposition that these long established traditions are now magically fraud, there's no evidence they intended anything fraudulent. Well, so uh, let, let, case let is me... garbage. The only reason it has any chance is because of the corruption of the D.C. grand jury, the corruption of Jack Smith, and the corruption of the judges in D.C. Let me play uh, actual devil's advocate. Uh, preliminary question. Who signs off on the state electors? The electors come in and say, okay, we're the electors, but who ultimately... Well, in the case of Michigan, this is their problem. So the Michigan state is uh, law. It, uh, here's the bottom line. Michigan submitted electors were not capable of proof. So the be, uh, because under Michigan state law, which is what's required for it to be an official public record, Michigan state law said the only official public record for electors is who the governor says the electors are. Mm -hmm. That's, and there's now I have constitutional questions about that, but putting that aside, that meant that this couldn't be, this would only be if vice president Pence said, I accept these other electors instead of these, and it was Vice President Pence would have to give it legal authority. And until he did, it wasn't capable of having legal authority. So the that was, I mean, they all knew that too, by the way. Um, you, nobody that was, these law professors in 2020 suggesting this as a remedy. Uh, the Democrats, including Podesta and others, they were suggesting this as a remedy in 2020. Nobody said this would be illegal. It's patently absurd. No one has ever suggested that this is criminal. So these are unprecedented, unparalleled actions against unparalleled officials in the case of the president of the United States and electors that violates every constitutional and statutory rule that exists concerning criminal behavior. So well, it, uh, it just shows what we have as people who, if you disagree with the official narrative, now we want to put you in prison. Well, let's just take like Steve Lito from Michigan. He comes in and says, I consider myself to be the elector, the, the state, one, one of the state um, By the way, electors. people do that all the time. People send in all kinds of stuff. That, that's what makes it ludicrous. It has to be capable of being a public record. 
So the the it, this never was because the Michigan state law required to come from the governor. The, this law is designed. Well, it's a good transition to January sixth SCOTUS case. Mm-hmm. This law was designed to deal with people falsifying deeds at the courthouse as to who owned homes, as to who owned property. That's how ludicrous it is to try to apply it to an election contest. Well, and this would have been at worst a case of protest of citizens saying this was I don't believe the legitimacy of this election. I'm the Republican elector. Nominate me or appoint me Gretchen Whitmer. But it was capable of defrauding. Well, you don't have to actually defraud. Someone has to be capable of it. Pence, if Pence acted on it, it wouldn't be because he's like, golly gee, I had no idea that uh, the governor certain no, because he would be constitutionally disagreeing with it. That's mm. why it's, it's all ludicrous at every level. The Jack Smith prosecution, ludicrous. The Michigan prosecution, ludicrous. The Georgia prosecution, ludicrous. Well, no, and then I was, I was well, hold on, let me, let me bring up the video just because it's, it's fantastic. It's one last question I have on this, Robert, is wh- it took two years to come up with these charges. Let me see something. This is it right here. Two years. To come up with these charges, let's hear what the uh, let's hear what the answer to this. Sixteen is. Michigan residents are facing felony charges for falsely claiming to be presidential electors for former President Trump after he lost the 2020 election. And your argument right now is Pence. In order for it to be criminal fraud, it would have had to be Pence saying, "I nominate these electors because they they falsified documents that led me to wrongly believe they were not who they say they are." When in reality, they were saying exactly who they say they are, and it would have been up to me as, to to. As even to he says, like he's even confused by the way he announces it. Oh, wait until this. Wait until the question, Robert. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel announced all of that Tuesday. Each of the 16th alleged false electors have been charged with eight felony counts. Joining us now. Is Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Madam Secretary, why did it take so long for these charges to manifest? All the material facts have been known for more than two years. <laughs> why did it take so long? You knew about this for two years. Wait until, I don't know if you saw this video, Robert. Wait until you hear her cockamamie answer. Hold on, how do I press play here? Well, I think the attorney general's investigation was meticulous. Mm. It was fact-driven. And it was mindful of this moment that we're in where things, Mm. particularly with regards to law enforcement Mm. around violations of election law pertaining to the 2020 election, have become overly politicized. (laughs) So it was really important. And by the way, this is the Jocelyn Benin that tried tried to cover up dead people being on her voter rolls, tried to try to change what she gave to people making public. She committed actual crimes during the 2020 election. Oh, but the was- mere fact that the reporter has to describe it as, oh, they were lying about them being Trump electors? Clearly they weren't lying about. He's confused about what is it exactly they were lying about? And it took, how did it take you two years? Oh, it, it, it was meticulous fact-driven stuff. And there's and no th- new facts in it whatsoever. This has got, but Robert, it's gotten so politicized. Her only choice was to was to um, indict. I mean, it's so political that it would have been the political motivated decision not to charge him. Listen to this carefully, judiciously, and her investigators did so. And when they were ready to issue an indictment, I think there was also a question of what was the right move in this challenging political Look environment. At those eyes. Ultimately, it, it appears she Crazy. decided that the the most political thing for her to do would be to not proceed. With <laughs> charges, then overwhelming oh. Out. The, the the most political thing for them to have done, the most politicized decision would have been to not charge I mean, the them. best summation is that, according to them, Alexander Hamilton committed a crime. Thomas Jefferson committed a crime. John Adams committed a crime. Pretty much everybody connected to 1876 committed a crime. John Kennedy and Richard Nixon in 1960 committed a crime. And that the Democrats were plotting and planning a crime throughout 2020 in terms of what they published about the right to contest elections. It's Possibly. utterly 
ludicrous what's taking place. Posthumous um, impeachment, Robert. Posthumous. uh, Remove them from the ground and impeach them again. All right. The January 6th indictment at the federal level, I mean, is this more of the same? This has to do with uh, Trump participating, I guess, in seditious conspiracy. Robert, they're going to try to get him off the ballot. I know you don't think it's possible. I'm not. not, Okay, but uh, here's here's why there's uh, first of all, uh, the there's several different reasons. My main reason is a simple one. The probability that secretaries of state and that courts go along with removing Trump from the ballot in close or conservative states is just extremely low. Why do I say that? They've never done it in American history. So even when Eugene V. Debs was a was convicted of espionage against the United States. He was on the ballot throughout the United States, outside of those southern states that didn't allow anybody on the ballot. But excluding those, he was on all he was on more ballots than he'd been on in any time before for the president. And he was in prison at the time. Robert, we crossed the Rubicon, however. We're we're beyond the Rubicon. It's never been done is the best argument for that. It will be done this time around. (laughs) Same with Victor Berger. Victor Berger, founder, co-founder of the Socialist Party with Eugene Debs, congressman from Milwaukee. Uh, indicted also on the Espionage Act. Both of them indicted because they gave speeches against the draft and against the war, World War One. It was a clear uh, abuse, obviously, of, of, of federal power. Last real time we saw it to this scale was World War One. It's also when J. Edgar Hoover rose up and so forth. The uh, and he too was uh, convicted, and yet he kept getting reelected. And here's why: even if you want to take a crazy interpretation of the 14th Amendment and that it still applies. The first problem is the 14th Amendment only talks about holding office, not running for office. Two very different things. That's why never uh, they tried to keep Gosar off the ballot, Marjorie Taylor Greene off the ballot, Madison Cawthorn off the ballot. They fail on the same 14th Amendment argument. They failed in all three cases. Uh, and they've never successfully in American history kept someone off the ballot on 14th Amendment grounds. The only example of them keeping them out of office either happens right after the Civil War or only once in the case of Victor Berger, where the House used its power to seat, to refuse to seat him, power that would ultimately be reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court in the Powell decision 40 years later. Ultimately, they conceded when his conviction was set aside that they had no grounds to not seat him and seat him. So even they admitted that that, you know, crazy right wing version of the House of Representatives in 1920 or crazy anti-democratic, little d-democratic House admitted that you needed at least a conviction on a relevant charge, uh, which means you need a conviction on espionage, a conviction on insurrection. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, the statutes they're talking about for Trump on the January 6th charges are not insurrection charges. And for those that don't know, the definition of insurrection at the time that that 14th Amendment was passed requires engaged in violence against the authority of government. You have to have been engaged in it. Yeah, the aiding and abetting part only applies to enemy of the government. That has been traditionally limited to times of war. Well, has has engaged in violence been limited to physical acts with the body, or can that include words out of the mouth? Uh, no, it has to be physical violence. So the uh, it 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 can't be verbal. It can't be. It has to be literal violence against the uh, the, the the people. That was the interpretation of insurrection. That's why they in the Fourth Amendment was considered limited. It wasn't going to apply to anyone that had not already taken an oath 
previously to them being involved in insurrection and the insurrection was actual violent action, not just political action. Uh, it was, you know, it was people who joined the Confederacy, uh, not by voting, but were in the army, Confederate army. The uh, now there, there was actual declaration of war, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Civil War, same World War One. We had an actual declaration of war. So that's what also made it different. Uh, the uh, but there's always been issues. So so part one is doesn't relate doesn't concern ballot access. It concerns holding the office. Second, guess what office is not listed? The presidency of the United States. It says the Senate, the House, electors for the presidency, and then any other officer. And in that context, as the state of New York admitted in what they were trying to fight the re- uh, removal action. That when when that's the phraseology, the Supreme Court has made clear that does not include the president. The 14th Amendment explicitly excludes the president. And you can guess why, because there's a specific remedy for the president. It's called impeachment. The only grounds to keep the president from office is conviction and then removal and barring from office. Uh, There's no other constitutional means. So that's why the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to the president, the removal disqualification provision anyway. Then you have the additional problems that it was designed during the Confederacy historically. So it's application outside of that context. The Berger case is the only example where they didn't seat someone because of the 14th Amendment ever since 1898. And the court never had to address it because they threw out Berger's conviction as being totally bogus in the first place due to a biased judge, same biased judge who would later run Major League Baseball, by the way. Uh, A little side point to history. But then you have the problem that the judge pointed out in the Cawthorn case, which is you had amnesty laws passed in 1872 and 1898, which appeared to permanently remove the enforcement of this provision. That has never been adjudicated. So if they even try it with Trump, it is just extremely unlikely that any court is going to keep Trump off the ballot. Because that's a whole different animal than even criminally prosecuting him. Then, I mean, the prosecution is in control of the Justice Department. The courts don't really control that. They can control dismissal, though they hate to dismiss cases in prosecution. But this would be the courts having control over what's in the ballot and secretaries of state. That doesn't mean some Democrats won't try it. But is it, ex- it is extremely remote. And if our system is so long gone that they're actually going to prohibit the man Americans want from being president, to be on the president, then the whole country is lost anyway, frankly. And we're in a whole different state of affairs. Uh, and uh, and then people's doom and demise depictions would be correct because then the courts have totally lost their mind. <laughs> well, but Robert, uh, I, let's just... I don't believe the courts would go that far. Think about it so far. They thought the New York court, other courts would gag him, lock him up pending trial. They're not willing to do that, right? Because they're not that insane. They, they, they're politically prejudiced. But they're not willing to say, oh, American people, I won't even let you vote for them. That, that's a very different animal. Let me just ask the question. Hypothetically, the worst case scenario occurs. The country has fallen. What do I do? <laughs> okay, yeah. never mind. It's, that's a joke. Well, yeah, um, I mean, yeah, prepare accordingly. Um, all right, Robert, the lawyer, do we... We, we, we get into the lawyers being targeted for the January 6th stuff, or is this... Yeah, that, I, mean, that's so, I mean, this is the Texas case. Uh, who uh, now? Sorry, I'm 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 drawing a blank. I'm thinking of Jeff Clark now. Who's one? But Jeff Clark is not the same thing as well, the still, Texas. Yeah, no. You have 
So you have Clark and Eastman and Giuliani and Sidney Powell all being targeted. But uh, they have not now gone after the assistant attorney general in Texas simply for signing the petition they filed to the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of the state of Texas. And so uh, they got a unique process and relatively unique in Texas. Texas Supreme Court controls who's licensed, but the Texas legislators legislature set up a separate state bar of Texas that enforces these provisions for the decision to ultimately be made by the Texas Supreme Court. And in this process, you have a means of you have multiple levels of administrative review. You have a right to go to a judge. You have a right to go to a jury trial. You have a right to being in the, in the county where you're a resident, so on and so forth. But the mere fact so that they're bringing in ethics to the state bar, the initial person who looked at it said this is nonsense, dismissed it, was overturned by the liberal hacks who run the state bar in Austin. And, you know, this is this is why I've been warning against. I'm opposed to licensing lawyers, period. And we're seeing it live time that all it does allow the professional and managerial class to misuse and abuse their power for political and partisan reasons. At a minimum, we should start putting restrictions on these things. And it's why I may have what some consider a deviant opinion on the Supreme Court ethics issues that we'll talk about in a second. The courts have proven incapable of of nonpartisan enforcement of these rules. They should not be the you know this combination anyway. But the administrators in charge are, as Jerry Spence used to say, the gentlemen of the bar are the gentlemen of the bar with the top hat. Uh, They're the privileged corporate neoliberal lawyers uh, overwhelmingly. So even though the person who looked at this initial case against the assistant attorney general filed by a political critic, so not filed by a client, not filed by a court, not filed even by opposing counsel, filed by someone who had nothing to do with the case. These cases should be dismissed automatically. No grounds to even pursue them. But that's what the uh, regulator did. But then it was appealed to the liberal hacks in Austin, and they're like, no, 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 this is a very important case. We're going to keep pursuing it. Uh, and by the way, same grounds as the false certification theories. Like, you made statements that we disagree with about who won an election. Thereby, you committed fraud. It's, it's absurdity. It's redefining uh, criticizing the official narrative as fraud. It's what the Robert Kennedy's talking about in censorship context. It's what Alex Jones's cases were really all about. So this uh, the, the case goes to the Austin court, then it gets transferred to the El Paso appeals court, and it's no better. And because what the U.S. attorney general raises, he goes, how is it that I work for the state and the state is suing me when only the attorney general's office has the authority to do that? Isn't that a breach of separation of powers? And while it's a technical focus, the broader conceptual issue is if you can weaponize licenses against lawyers, then you can have one branch of the government, in this case, basically the state bar, override the legislative branch, the executive branch, the judicial branch in places, because their power over their licensure can allow them to manipulate policy when none of these people are elected officials against the will of the elected officials. Because here's an assistant attorney general who simply drafted a petition that was supported by the people of Texas that the attorney general for Texas was reelected in 2022 because he did this. And it's overriding the will will of the people of Texas, overriding the executive branch. But what does the 
lazy uh, authoritarian El Paso appeals court conclude? Uh, they say, oh, there's no problems with this. No problems at all. Because uh, you, you're not being sued. Be, uh, you're, not, you're not having your license threatened because of your actions uh, in filing suit. It's only because of what was in the suit. Like, that's any different. You're allowing a small group of people in the state bar to run ramshot over the entire rest of the elected branch of government. They refuse to deal with that straightforwardly because they love the power that it, it, it incurs to them and because they're all liberal hacks overwhelmingly. So that may go up to the Texas Supreme Court, where at least you do have seven Republican conservative judges, but they are often lazy and lackadaisical at taking these kind of cases because they don't like to gut the court's own power. But it's a deep, it shows how dangerous the weaponization of the entire legal process is, but including the licensing power, that if you're a lawyer that raises questions about the official narrative, they can take away your ability to make a living. Or if you happen to be an old elector in Michigan, they can try to put you in prison. Uh, Robert, before we get into the ethics of the SCOTUS, let me just... Uh... Oh, we have the January 6th SCOTUS case, too. Ah, okay, sorry. Let, let me, let's do a, just a, a few of these rumble rants that have come in. Uh, I know we got to... Um... Did we get to Arkansas crime attorney? Can he not sever and remove on federal question? We did. Can he be charged with treason? We got to that. Two more. What is the penalty for Biden ignoring the Supreme Court ruling on student loan forgiveness, MRK-133? I'll venture an answer and say nothing, Robert, the same way they tried to well, circumvent. he dramatically the shrunk the program, so it's only 10% as big. So it's not clear anybody who now has standing that would have had standing before because of how much he... So the program is now a drop in the bucket of what it used to be. All right. And I was going to say, the way they responded to the um, the Bruin decision, just try to make, try to make other legislation and just retest it again, what was already settled by the Supreme Court. Bulgadari says it was one of the it was one of a preservation effort. Each state has two sets of electors. This is a silly bunch of bullshit. Totally not political. I roll commence. All right, Robert, January. Uh, hold on. What, what was the next one we had here? January. 6th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. January 6th. The uh, Norm Pattis, the case of uh, Edward Lang is a case we've discussed. We just. This was the case where the district court dismissed and then the D.C. court in a split decision affirmed. That's the <coughs> that's the one that uh, Pattis and co-counsel are raising before the Supreme Court. It's at the petition for search stage. So this is all about that. It's similar to the other issues. It's reconverting an obstruction statute that, by the way, was passed as part of financial fraud reform to give you an idea of how utterly unrelated it is. So they took a statute that says if you corrupt an official proceeding investigation and they list a bunch of examples, you know, forging documents, fraudulent documents, things like that, then it's a separate 20 year obstruction crime to try to discourage and deter people, particularly in the SEC context, from just forging documents, having fraudulent documents, et cetera, but also Congress and other kinds of a full investigative proceeding hearing. Uh, prior to January 6th, it had only been applied to those contexts. The January 6th prosecutors come in. This is why prosecutors can't be trusted with this kind of power. They come in and say, uh, you know what? If you were at the Capitol on January 6th, then you were trying to corruptly obstruct the electoral certification, and now you can go to prison for 20 years under the obstruction statute. Even though there's specific statutes that call that misdemeanor trespass, even those specific statutes that say parading or picketing without a license and using a sound horn is a misdemeanor offense. Even if certain violent crimes are only subject to three or five year statute of limitations, uh, uh, prison sentences, they were trying to convert it, escalate it all the way up to 20 year obstruction 
statutes. The district court said this makes no sense and threw it out. The D.C. Court of Appeals affirmed in a split decision. One judge ruled one way, another judge ruled another way, and a third judge ruled a third way. And so that presents the nice set of facts for the Supreme Court. With the clear argument is that, you know, the word obstructing an official proceeding, what is you have all these detailed provisions that says here's what corrupting is like, and then it has a catch-all or otherwise corruptly obstruct. It, that has always been interpreted to be like its prior examples. Instead, what the lead decision of the Court of Appeals said, and what the prosecutors have been pursuing, and what other district courts have affirmed and approved, and this is the main criminal sentencing risk for almost everybody involved is this statute, is that the word corruptly just means you have an unlawful purpose, you took an unlawful action, and had the effect of obstructing a proceeding which could take unlicensed parade into you're now a 20-year felon, 20-year federal prison sentence. Unlawful picket, unlicensed picketing, now 20-year federal prison sentence. Uh, basically, if they don't like the politics by which you protested, you're now subject to a 20-year federal prison sentence. That violates the clear statutory canons of statutory construction. That violates basic due process principles. And so this will give the Supreme Court the first chance and my view is the more they escalate, like the Michigan electors case, and the more they escalate, like a potential January 6th indictment of Trump, the more likely the U.S. Supreme Court will step in earlier and will step in at all to do something. They may not do so here, but those odds increase dramatically with the word of the possible going after Trump. For these, because it, to everybody who's watching it, to even people that were anti-Trump just four years ago, it's obvious way over the top. They're trying to pound the guy into oblivion. It's, it, 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 it is amazing because it started with the New York. Then, why do I have a screen coming up here? Did I just go blank? Um, it's, it's outrageous, but the problem is I, it, it has a weathering effect on people where they think he must have done something bad if they're coming after him this hard for so many things. But and not- he's going up in the polls, which, by the way, was the same result for both Victor Berger and Eugene V. Debs. After Eugene V. Debs' conviction, he went from 1% to 5%. Uh, either he got one of the highest rates of, uh, of, of voter support for a third party uh, in American history. And, and he did so while in a federal prison. Victor Berger, after he got convicted, became so popular in Wisconsin, he almost won the U.S. Senate seat. So historically, going after people with this excessive, over-the-top style almost always backfires politically. And right now, Trump has the biggest lead he's had over Biden or any Democrat in any poll that he's ever had since he elect, entered office or considered politics in 2012. And one uh, side note, Norm Pattis, I don't know that we ever mentioned this, uh, Norm Pattis's suspension of his license by Judge Bellis in the Alex Jones trial, was that was stayed? The suspension was stayed until final resolution of the dispute. So he can still practice for anybody asking. How is it that Norm Pattis, who had his license revoked, is still there? Um, and that, I, I guess, hasn't been resolved yet. The, the $1.5 billion judgment against Alex Jones. Okay. Ethics at the SCOTUS, Robert. I'm torn on this one. I don't know exactly the extent of existing rules or lack thereof. Uh, I don't know the details on whatever legislation the Dems are proposing or contemplating to impose on Supreme Court justices. The argument is that they have some proposed legislation to impose ethics rules on Supreme Court justices. It would be dead in the water if it were ever uh, presented to the Senate. Um, if I made the mistake on the house, correct me. 
And uh, it raises the question of the separation of powers as to whether or not they can legislate restrictions on Supreme Court justices. I'm, um, I, I'm, I'm amenable to the idea of some restrictions because in as much as I love Clarence Thomas, in his legal reasoning and judicial findings, even sometimes when I disagree with him, you know, I still have to defer to his better judgment. The idea, it doesn't look good what, what he is confirmed to have done, whether or not other people have done it is not, you know, it, it's a defense in that if it's not illegal and if it's not unlawful, don't hold Clarence Thomas to a standard that no other Supreme Court justice is or has been held to. I don't like the way it looks in general, but that's me. It's not illegal, apparently, and, and you'll flesh this out. What is the, um, What's the essence of what the Democrats want to put forward by way of ethics legislation for the Supreme Court justices, and what are the constitutional uh, hurdles it might meet? So the I mean, what the Democrats have put put uh, put out through their committee. It's only passed the committee. It hasn't passed the full Senate yet. It's never passed the House. Is that the Supreme Court? It orders the Supreme Court to adopt rules. Doesn't say what those rules have to be, and then as one enforcement mechanism which is that there will be a group of randomly assigned lower court judges to decide questions of disqualification of a Supreme Court justice if a motion to recuse that justice is made. Uh, kind of ironic because they don't allow that same protocol to be used for judges below the Supreme Court. So the reason why there's political blowback is everybody can see how obviously political this is. Mm -hmm. And that in addition, that the Senate is probably, Democrats are probably trying to set this up because courts are allowed to keep their position uh, as long as they during times of good behavior. They're probably wanting to establish the ethical rules or failures to recuse as grounds of saying if you're not in good behavior, that you could be removed from the federal bench. In fact, they probably want to do so through administrative means without even going through the constitutional process of impeachment, where they know they'll never get the votes for an individual judge. And they're clearly targeting the conservative justices, uh, Thomas and, Scal and uh, Alito in particular. So that's the, the core component of what's uh, taking place here. And as people noted in our chat, you know, the irony and hubris of the United States Senate talking about ethics of anybody else uh, raises fair question. Uh, with so many members of Congress getting so fabulously rich and currently still refusing to pass Josh Hawley's bill that would prohibit them from owning stock while they're senators, and trading and selling that stock while they're senators, where they've gotten, like Richard Burr of North Carolina, fabulously rich uh, off of doing. And as Purdue and Leffler and others got in Georgia, part of the real reason they lost those races. So the, uh, but Republicans kind of ignored it. So the, uh, the the legislation is brought in bad faith, and I don't think the United States Senate will approve it. And uh, I think that it will likely get filibustered so that it never even reaches the House, never reaches Biden's desk. That being said, in theory, I have never been in favor of the courts controlling the courts. What I mean by that is we have a three-part branch of government. And to me, that should apply. It's why I don't think Congress should have subpoena power over especially over private citizens that don't relate to legislation, but want great limits on it. To me, Congress should have to request that from the Justice Department. Uh, I don't think Congress should have police power with its own little capital police. For the same reason is why I don't I don't think the, the executive branch has any business legislating, is why I don't think the judicial branch has any business legislating or, exe or executive branch activities. Don't like the U.S. Marshals being under ju judges' control. 
And so the problem is in the legal profession, uh, judges write uh, the legislature, the executive, and the adjudicator. They uh, write the rules governing lawyers and themselves. They get to enforce those rules as to themselves and as to the lawyers before them. And then they get to a judge how good their rules are and whether their enforcement has been good. They are quite literally judge, jury, and executioner. And I don't think constitutionally that makes any sense with a tripartite system of government. So I have no problem with the idea that the legislator, legislature should control licensing. I'm not in favor of licensing, period. But if anybody's going to do it, it should be the legislature. And I have a problem with the legislature trying to impose rules. Now, I can tell you the U.S. Supreme Court and federal courts have rejected that. In fact, courts at every state level have rejected it. They've said no state, can, no state legislature can impose rules that govern the core judicial system. So they're not going to enforce it anyway. It's going to be whether they want to. They go along with financial disclosures because they decide, well, we're not going to fight it politically. But they, they don't feel they're bound at all by what Congress says. But I'm not, I've never been confident that's a good thing. Now, I think their recusal procedures uh, are do, deeply dubious. How do you have a recusal procedure that requires lower court judges to terminate Supreme Court justices recusal from a case? Well, a federal judge always gets to control their recusal at every other level, according to Congress's own bills. So if you're going to create a meaningful recusal process, you can't have a, high, a, a different standard for the Supreme Court than lower courts. Is the, I mean, am I not oversimplifying potentially by saying that they have an ultimate recusal process? It's called impeachment if a judge behaves so badly yeah, yeah. in the context precisely, of it. Precisely. That, that's all the Constitution affords. They can't change his pay. They can't take away life tenure. And the, there's an argument they shouldn't be able to tax him. Uh, I, I, judges sued on those grounds many years ago. I agreed with the judge's claims because by definition, if you could just tax them into oblivion, then it's the same as taking away their pay. So, you know, the, I, I agreed with the court with the criticism there, but the, uh, uh, the, the other courts ironically capitulate, you know, capitulated to the legislative branch's privilege of taxation. But the, uh, uh, but yes, the, the, the remedy has always been impeachment. Now I have no problem with, the legislature setting rules by which people practice before these courts and having the executive branch be the sole branch that can enforce those rules and then letting the courts adjudicate the correctness of them. That should be particularly for for appearances of lawyers. I mean, I'm not for any licensure, but if we're going to have any, that's how it should be done. Not the way it's currently done. Uh, and some independent check on judges. I'm all in favor of in principle. Uh, this is kind of a half-assed version well of it. Uh, done for politically motivated purposes. And and it could be like the Ethics Act in, in Canada where you have some investigative process but with no with no punitive capability and then the punitive capability comes from impeachment if they say this he this judge violated the ethics we don't do anything now it's up to the government to impeach and remove. Correct. And we got All right. three three more cases before we, uh, we'll discuss two bonus topics over at uh, the after party exclusive at vivabarnslaw.locals.com. But hold on. To guarantee your chat answer, give a $5 tip or more there, and we'll answer all of those, too, during the after-party session. Two questions, Robert. The first is this. In the poll in YouTube, what did the protesters say, puke, joke, or Jew? It was 73% for puke, joke, puke or joke, and 26% for Jew. That was a 577-vote, measly, piddly drop in the bucket. We got 21,000 people watching right now on Rumble. For those who have seen this from the beginning, what did the protesters say in the chat? Put in one, 
for puke and or joke and two in the chat for um jew well you know how you would know if the guy said jew go on it was nick fuentes in the truck (laughs) okay well now that was the second part robert do we do we spend it wasn't on the list do we spend five minutes talking about the fuentes debacle of last week brandenburg and whether or not i'm totally out in left field Okay, so everybody who has uh, heard the controversy of the last week, it, it got I got in a fight with people on Twitter because I immediately became Andrew Torba, Jew lawyer at Rumble, who says, yeah, if you show up on a platform and say, we will make them die in the holy war, uh, expect that to be violative of policies. Nick Fuentes was giving a speech. I don't know exactly where. It was a live stream speech. Uh, in the speech... He's talking about, I understand the broader context, talking about the Talmud, the words of the Talmud being in a holy war. And, you know, people are saying Steve Bannon talked about a holy war all the time. He should get booted too. Steve Bannon, in analogizing what we're going through to a holy war, never said we will make anybody die. So the the impugned speech was Nick Fuentes saying, we are in a holy war. If If we're fighting in a holy war, it wasn't if, it was we are in a holy war. We will make them die in the holy war. The initial stream got taken down for incitement to violence, violating Rumble's terms of service. Apparently, there was some miscommunication from what I understood from an interview that Nick Fuentes gave afterwards that I listened to. Nick Fuentes didn't know it was taken down for that. He re-uploaded it, and then it was taken down a second time. Um, and in an interview, he said, look, okay, I, I can understand how this violated the terms of service, where you know he, he purported, like, I was talking about a holy war, and I said, you know, the, we'll, we'll, they'll die in the holy war. It wasn't they will die. What he said was, we will make them die in the holy war. Now, people took out there and said, oh, Rumble's truly not for free speech and yada, yada, yada. And there's only so much of a sensible argument you can have on Twitter uh, before it degenerates. You don't have pornography on Rumble. And yet nobody is arguing that Rumble is not a free speech platform because it does not allow pornography in its terms of service. So people who disingenuously want to attack Rumble for allegedly violating its principle of free speech or saying, oh, it's not a free speech platform. If I cannot say on the platform, we will make them die in the holy war. I didn't know who them was. Everybody knew who them was. I didn't say anything. I didn't say I was going to kill them. I just said we were going to make them die as though that's a material distinction. There's no porn allowed on the platform. It's not a, it is not a violation of free speech in the sense that anyone cares about when it comes to terms of services that you, learn, that you, that you abide by. People are reflexively going to Brandenburg versus Ohio, where a group of K- it was KKK or neo Nazis come out. They give a speech. In the context of this speech, the speechmaker, whoever it was, says, "There's a possibility of revengeance." That revengeance was the sick. He said, "There's a, poss- a possibility of revengeance." Use the N word for blacks and the K word for, for for Jews, I believe. And the Supreme Court came out and said, that's not a true threat because it's not, it doesn't uh, incite imminent lawlessness. I, uh, we're going to do another vote in a second to see whether or not there will be a possibility of revengeance is better or worse or less threatening or more threatening than we will make them die in the Holy War. And that was the, that was the whole controversy of the week. Did Rumble breach its commitment to free speech by enforcing its terms of service, which even Nick Fuentes in an interview, I forget who he gave the interview with. It was a 16 minute interview acknowledged. Yeah, I can understand that they would have done it, but I just would have liked some more clarity, transparency, Robert, you talked about it in locals, Brandenburg v. Ohio, the 
the constitutional threshold for a true threat versus terms of service that prohibit incitement to violence. Was it incitement to violence? Was it against an identifiable group? Was it sufficiently imminent to be a true threat under constitutional law? Was it justified under terms of service that prohibit incitement to violence? Your take, knowing what you think about Nick Fuentes in general. Sure. The, it didn't violate any First Amendment principles. So the uh, Fuentes' speech, uh, the didn't meet the imminent requirement uh, and likely to occur requirement of either true threat or imminent incitement language that is outside the First Amendment's protection. But Rumble here was acting indisputably in a private capacity. There is no collusion between Rumble and the state. There's been no coercion uh, by the state towards uh, Fuentes' speech or these issues in general. So uh, it, that's what separates it from the other censorship cases, Biden versus Missouri and others ongoing, is there you had state coercion and state collusion. So the action was really by the state. Here, this was truly by Rumble and not by the state. Secondly, I have always advocated that the only time First Amendment standards should apply is when someone is a de facto public square, digital public square, and I equate that to monopoly power, that when they uh, have monopoly power in a particular space, then I think we could constitutionally impose the same restrictions as we do on the state. Rumble is nowhere near that, uh, so Rumble wouldn't meet that definition either. Third, both Rumble's terms of service and the statements that I've made concerning the rule changes that we propose to Rumble have made clear that Rumble will not be a, a pure free speech in the gab kind of context. That Rumble's made clear that they do not want stalkers, harassers, doxers, defamers, copyright violators, uh, neo-Nazis, Antifa, fascist, racist, Klansmen. Uh, using their platform to harass and harangue people and try to go right up to the First Amendment line without violating it, which is what Nick Fuentes' specialty is. <clears throat> I mean, Fuentes knows what he's doing. He has to get constant attention in order to continue his race-grifting, race-hustling ways. Anybody who takes him seriously or at face value should have their head examined uh, or should step out of politics altogether because you're too dumb and too slow to be meaningfully engaged in it. And so the uh, now I'm sure several of his fans will now pay me money uh, to troll uh, troll me on VivaBarnesLaw.locals.com, which is no better evidence of their IQ. Um, so, but the uh, and so Rumble, but Rumble's rules are nothing. Like somebody was saying, oh, these are as vague and uncertain and unclear as everyone else. Our proposed rules are crystal clear. You can go back and look at those. Uh, they they're in the process of Rumble formalizing. But what they do is you can't incite violence against a targeted group. The imminent requirement's not present. The likely it probably occurs is not present. Why? Because Rumble doesn't want to become Gab and lose 95% of its audience. And those of us on Rumble don't want it to lose 95% of its audience. Like at vivabarnslaw.locals.com, if, if you come in and you're a crude pig, you're getting kicked out of the board because you're coming into our house, our, our, my bar. I kick you out just like I would in my bar. Uh, we're not a pure free speech zone, nor is Rumble. Rumble's as much free speech as you can possibly get. But if you're if you're there to try to get right up to the line, Rumble's not going to protect you because you're making the the platform an unlikable, undesirable place for people to use. And no business is in the business of losing clients and losing customers. The difference is Rumble has proven 
It will not use political or partisan or government-based reasons to censor anybody. It is very clear. Just You can't incite violence against targeted groups. You can't break the law. And you can't try to get close to breaking the law. That's it. It doesn't, it doesn't have, I mean, Alex Jones, never been censored on Rumble. Nick Fuentes has a channel and 90% of what he publishes is still I'll just, on I'll Rumble. just highlight this. Nick Fuentes in the interview admitted I can understand how I can understand how that you know was problematic, um, but I I, I you know, I'm reading the chat right now and people say oh so Rumble is YouTube light. I, there's a reason why I'm making such a big stink of my Francois Amelaga interview being removed from YouTube, and it's not because I'm a hypocrite with no standards or no self reflection insight. When anybody dares compare Rumble and their application of their rules to YouTube and their application of their opaque vague rules. Rumble gave the, the timestamp, gave the clip, so much so that even the, uh, the, the perpetrator, for lack of a better word, knew exactly what was being criticized of him and was able to acknowledge there might be some legitimacy to it, as opposed to the, I'm not telling you the timestamp, I'm not telling you the rule, and here's a strike. So well, it's not yeah, comparable. Not only that, YouTube and others are censoring stuff at state request. Big difference. Number, number two, they're doing so in ways that reduce the number of people who watch and participate, the, which is just the opposite of what Rumble's doing. So, but here's what the reality, nobody likes Gab. So the people that are criticizing Rumble, what they're really demanding is Rumble, we demand you be Gab. We demand you be a haven for Jew haters and race baiters and race grifters. Nobody wants to be you, Gab. No, I'll no, nobody I'll wants to be you, Andrew Torba. No, no, why do you think it never goes anywhere? So people demanding that are demanding suicide of a business. That has never been required by the First Amendment or anything else. Well, and I said, Fuentes still has the channel. He'll know clearly, as will everyone else. You cannot say you you like it or don't like it, and you'll make your decisions You know as to which platforms you go on. You cannot say, unironically, we will make them die. Now, people are going to say it was in the context of a holy war. It wasn't literal. The only people who say that sort of thing don't know who Fuentes is. Well, no, but so, He's it's, a race-baiting, race-grifting, Jew-hating, disgusting human being who is, who is playing off, who has pushed every deep, dark, sinister, nasty, false, fictitious, fabricated, race-based, race Jew-hating story you possibly could. Uh, but I'll so tell you anybody pretending, Oh, I wasn't sure what the Klansmen meant. Yeah, you were. Quit, I'll, I'll, quit hiding. You're a racist bigot and go home. Don't want you. Well, and I'll tell you, I'm not sensitive about the Jewish question. And there's a way it would have been more convenient if you were talking about trans. But imagine talking about you're in a you're in a war with trans ideology and we will make them die in the holy war. Bullshit. Yeah. No, the well, immigrant part is counterproductive. I mean, it hurts the cause, it hurts free speech, it hurts free speech platforms, all the rest. So the uh the oh yes, he what he did didn't violate the first amendment. But he got as close to it as he possibly could. Well, I, I got to say this. I, they, and that's what Rumble is in a safe space for, because if it tried to be, you wouldn't have Rumble anymore. Well, not just yourself, that, that's, that's what you want. No, but, but the, the idea for those who purport to be free speech absolutists who still don't complain about the they fact go that to Gap. No, Go no, to Gap. Go to Gap. Hang out with all the Jew haters and all the pigs over there. Is Nobody there, else is there, wants to hear from you. Is there hardcore pornography allowed on Gab? I have no idea. No, no. Uh, not officially. Okay, well, but, I mean, if, if, you're in, if you're in Nick Fuentes DMs, good luck with that. <laughs> oh, and all that say, you know, Robert, when you say it, it would be the end of Rumble, I, I sort of sarcastically, tongue in cheek, glibly said, the, you know, the more that this goes on, the more I'm convinced that that Fuentes supporters are actually feds. Like this is like Ray Epps, go storm the Capitol. Oh, 
but I, 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 it's it's sabotage. It looks like sabotage to me at the very least. Yeah. Hey, Rubble, do it so that your demise, right. regardless. But also, I had one more thought there. Uh, the the constitutional argument. I understand the imminent uh, argument, but even in Brandenburg v. Ohio, he said the possible there is a possibility for revengeance. That's a definitive hypothetical. We right, will right. make them die in the holy war, it's but still, for having the word the well, image well, got and it's got to be a likely impact. So uh, likely that, impact, right? <laughs> I don't. Want, but that's why right. I'm in that set, when it comes to the state, it's a very different animal to me about how we interpret free speech mm -hmm. than a private company that does not have monopoly power that's trying to promote as much free speech as it possibly can and stay alive. Um. And uh, hold on, I had one more thought. No, I, I'd say for the imminent, but for having the word, we will make them die in the holy war now. I, I mean, I don't oh, know. He's deliberately coming right up to it. And he, he wants it because it's the only way he gets notoriety. This is a guy who pretended to be, you know, try to be a Ben Shapiro imitator. That didn't work. Tried to be a Trump influencer. That didn't work. So then he glammed on to Richard Spencer and made a big deal about how he was censored at, uh, at university because he attended Charlottesville. I mean, this is a guy who is an attention when he's not chasing little cat boys around, he's an attention whore who's who knows the race grift is one of the easiest grifts in the history of man. It's it's it doesn't matter whether you're Al Sharpton on the left or Klan's people on the right. Uh, that race grift has been a lifelong money maker for time eternal. He spent tons of time studying it. I don't believe he even believes ninety percent of the crap he puts out. Let me see here. It looks like DK Fat says, "Have a Bud Light on me, Barnes." <laughs> And we got Il Sarto says, STFU about hate speech. <laughs> okay, well, I'm not reading that. Uh, oh, oh, here, everyone can read it. This is picking up people. It's a okay, uh, Simotech says, what about big tech syndicate colluding with each other to censor like Amazon and Google with Parler, et cetera? Uh, we talked about that. And uh, Nuke Daddy says, how about we re recognize one race of people, the human race? Why can't we all just get along? And the Roz Rodriguez says, pathetic douche. And I don't know whom that he's talking about, but... Thank you all for the support. Robert, do we do one, we do one more and then we're going yep. to go to locals exclusively? Well, we have, yeah, three more briefly before we go to locals. Gun insurance laws, Ohio liquor laws, and diversity, equity, inclusion starting to meet its demise in federal court. Well, I'll go with the only one that I can add something to. the the Why restrict the First Amendment when you can just impose regulations or uh, requirements that make it prohibitive for people to exercise their First Amendment rights? Even Gun insurance... Amendment. Second Amendment, sorry, sorry, Second Amendment. Hey, who knows? Maybe they're going to have to have free speech insurance. Um, uh, Robert, I'm somewhat sensitive to this idea. The argument's going to be for me to fly a drone, although I have no constitutional right to a drone, I've got to have insurance to drive a car. You have to have insurance. Um, I'm trying to think of other things that you do, which might be considered constitutional rights that require insurance. Can't think of one offhand. Steel man the argument for why it's an unreasonable demand that gun owners have liability insurance or some form of gun insurance that could, in theory, uh, frustrate their abilities to exercise their Second Amendment. So the city of uh, San Jose imposed a requirement that you pay a fee each month into the city uh, that that somehow was OK, too. But also that you had to carry insurance uh, on your gun of a certain amount of liability coverage, et cetera. And the federal court determined that the Second Amendment has no limitations at all on uh, requirements, uh, on limitations or conditions, financial conditions uh, on gun ownership, that it has no application at all to, the to any insurance law requirement, no application at all to fee requirements, no application at all to tax requirements. Well, that's patently absurd. 
Because if, if you can tax a gun out of existence, expense it out of existence through high insurance or fee requirements, you've done the same thing as negate it. And the only thing the judge relied upon was old school surety standards, which the Supreme Court made clear the old surety standards were only imposed on people after they had been proven to be dangerous with a gun. To, to equate that to insurance makes no sense at all, yet that's what the court does. And then the other excuse uh, was that, well, the, they can't forfeit your gun ownership. They can, they can fine you. And, 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 of course, at some point, as part of property collection and seizure on that fine, seize your gun. But that's not direct forfeiture of a gun. So it's, it's more gamesmanship by a liberal uh, San Jose political body and a court that let it get away with it. Hopefully, the higher courts will stop this before it becomes the new wave of gun control in America. Has anyone ever made the argument that guns have to be free? Otherwise, that's a violation of my exercise of the Second Amendment rights. Okay, I'm joking. Um, what are the other two? Oh, the next Ohio. So for anybody that's ever tried to order good wine from the best wine stores, you know that it's very hard unless you're in the right state because you often can only order from within a state. Uh, there's no uh, interstate shipment allowed by a bunch of states. This is the case of Ohio's liquor laws. And the Supreme Court had a case years ago about this, but it had some unique facts that everybody ignored. The Sixth Circuit corrected that. And what is it? It's a unique, inter it's a, the liquor laws are unique. And then you have the Commerce Clause on the one hand, that you can't have prejudicial restrictions on interstate commerce. But the 21st Amendment, specifically says states can determine laws governing alcohol. So you have to, the, the laws that the 20, that lifted prohibition. So the question is, how do you manage the two? And the Supreme Court has said, that means states have a little more leeway than they normally would, but they still have to have a public health reason for any law. It can't just be, hey, it's liquor, so we do whatever we want. And the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals said Ohio's law may be illegal. Because if you dig in, you're going to find their restriction on interstate wine transfers ain't got nothing to do with your public health. It's got everything to do with the sweetheart deals they cut with local wine and liquor uh, warehouses for the licensing structure and the kickbacks they give the politicians. That's what it's really all about. There's no health reason why buying wine from California somehow is worse than buying wine from New York. Makes no sense at all. So uh, hopefully that revigorates parts of the dormant commerce clause in ways that I think can be helpful, at least to those of us who want to be able to order wine straight from the winery. All right. And last one before we head over to locals, and I'll put the link in locals. We're at 1,444 people live on locals now. All right. Amazing. That's great. Yeah. We'll be able, and again, if you want us to answer, if you have any tip above five bucks, we'll try to get to over there at the after party. And we'll be discussing... How embryos, if they're outside the womb, are somehow property now in Texas, not a human life, and about RFK censorship speech. But the last one is diversity, equity, inclusion. Our prediction after the equal protection case was that all race-based protocols and procedures in America are illegal, whether it's in employment, whether it's in admissions, whether it's in state contracts, you name it. Well, a case just went forward that was issued, one of the first decisions issued after the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision in Tennessee, by the way, up in the Greenville division about the program by the U S department of agriculture uh, and uh, the small business association 
which was giving preferential contracts based on race. And the court determined this violates, patently violates the Equal Protection Clause, because a lot like college admissions policies, the court went through and said, we're going to apply the exact same standards. You got to show the program is finite and limited in duration. You got to show the program is designed to remedy past discrimination. And you got to show it's directly connected to intentional discrimination. You got to have all three. Of course, what did the government agencies have? They had none of the three. They didn't even try. They didn't even pretend to try. They just thought race-based programs are perfect for us, helps us line our pockets politically. So we're going to keep doing it. The court said, no, you can't. The equal protection decision means race-based preferences and contracts are finito. And it's a sign of things to come. Fantastic. Now, because there's a bit of a cutoff when we end on Rumble and go over to Locals, I'm just going to play uh, just a little show everybody what. We caught this fish off a dock, Robert, with a little lead head jig, a worm, and a piece of bread. And we're not sure if the bread was a total fluke or what attracted this thing. It's called a bowfin. So as everyone goes over to Locals, vivabarnslaw.locals.com, I took my shirt off, not as a flex, but I didn't have a net and I wasn't expecting to catch a seven pound bowfin. You can't lift them. Look at this, Robert. Look at the size of it. I caught it. Don't drop it. Don't drop the phone. Don't drop the phone. I'm not gonna drop the phone. Kid didn't drop the phone. Look at look at this the This was what I caught. It's like it's a joke. You're swimming in water with beasts like this. This is Oh my god. Look at that mouth. Get the pliers. Both in people. This jaw. Look at this thing. Okay, this is Look called. It's called a snakehead or. A... Uh, I'm off. It's not a snakehead or a beaver fish. It's called a bowfin, everybody. All right. With that said, I'll give everyone the link one more time. Come on over to the after party. VivaBarnsLaw.locals.com. Thank you all for being here. Snip, clip, share away. Uh, I'll be live periodically this week. Uh, I'm going to be live tomorrow morning with uh, Jason Levine on his morning show, talking about the Coots Four. Um, everybody, stay tuned for next week. Robert, do you have a specific schedule of appearances next week? A lot of legal work, so no. Ah, yes, you still have that actual actual law job. Oh, God. (laughs) Okay, everybody, get on over to Rumble Locals. We're going to be there now. I'm going to end this on Rumble in 13, 15 seconds, whatever. See you all next week. Enjoy what's left of the weekend, and vivabornslaw.locals.com.